Hello and welcome to the MinMax Show, a place about games, friends, and getting better. Thank you for being here. My name is Ben Hansen. I'm joined by MinMax contributor and the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, Kelsey Lewin. Hi, that's me. Hi, welcome. Thanks for being here, Kelsey. Uh, we are joined, oh my gosh, from 8-4 all the way from Japan, otherwise known as Sarah Petzorski's former boss, John Ricciardi. Uh-oh. Good morning. <laughs> How's it going, man? Uh, it's good. I'm uh, trying to wake up here, so I'll do my best to stay alert. I have faith in you. Are you just used to crazy hours over there? Is it rare that you have to wake up this early to record something? I've always been a night person, so I mean, we, we you know we're used to dealing with people in the West, clients in the West, and so we've got a lot of morning meetings, but never before nine a.m. And right now it's five thirty-five over here. So. What a champion! What a champion! Thank you, John. Also joined by one Jeff Gersman. Hi, welcome, Hello. sir. My God. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Good. It's, it's great to be here. <laughs> It's great to fi- it's great to finally be here. Is that a weird is that a weird thing to say? I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot to unpack with you. This can go a thousand different directions. I feel like there was an episode of the Bombcast a while ago where you made some joke about like, yeah, I'll be appearing on MinMax in a couple weeks. Look forward to that. And so it's a, little, it's a couple more weeks than just two or so. But we're glad you're finally here. I don't know. Is that the way to phrase that? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm I'm out here. <laughs> you're out here. I made my escape, or whatever you want to call it. I don't know. Oh, yeah, hi. Crazy. Lovely to have you here, dude. Obviously, yeah. from the Jeff Gersman Show, from patreon.com slash Jeff Gersman, otherwise known as the other Patreon with two N's in the name. So congratulations, man. Yeah, no, people misspell it all the time. Uh, I'm sure used to the same thing. This two N thing, no one can no one can figure it out. Yeah, that's a mess. Uh, now, John, I don't know if you want to take notes on uh, how to launch a Patreon. Instead of just teasing it for... <laughs> Every episode of the podcast you've done over the last five to six years. We have we have top men and women working on it uh, as we speak. Uh, I think we're only a little bit a little bit away. Maybe another I don't know, couple weeks, couple months, okay. maybe a couple years. Right. We'll if you need there. any help, we can help you. We're we're ready to lob advice your way. Dude, man. we would. We really would. Honestly, like if we if we do get around to doing it at some point, you know, we're we're gonna come. We know you guys have all done it first. You've learned all the ins and outs. You know what to what to do, what to avoid, and all that stuff. We we absolutely would. We we joke about it all the time. Like uh, you know, we have this famous long running thing on our podcast about how we're doing like a part two to this. Resident <laughs> Evil retrospective yeah. that we, you know, we did part one, like, I don't know, almost a decade ago or something. Um, and we, you know, we're not doing that to, to pull people, you know, we're not doing that to tease people. We really are planning these things. But, you know, we do our podcast on the side as a sort of after work thing. And it's, it's not funded. That's why the Patreon thing might come in handy someday. And so, you know, we kind of get to this stuff when we can, but um, we're not, we're not trying to jerk people around. We really do intend to do this stuff someday. <laughs> yeah. I think that is just like the consequence of having such a long running podcast. Cause I mean, how long has a four play been going now? Dude, it's, it's over 10 years. I don't, Jesus. I honestly lost track. I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, we've done over 300 episodes, but you know, we're every other week. Yeah. And, um, Mark uh, McDonald, who is, you know, our host is, is a very, uh, he's a very strict uh, leader and like, you know, insists we never miss because we've, we've had a couple times, aside from the big earthquake that happened where everything shut down in Japan back in, in 2011, we've had a couple times where we've been like, you know, there's just no way to do it this week. We're all on vacation or we're all super busy or whatever. And Mark's like, no, he drops the hammer down. You've got to be there. We got to do it. We have a commitment to this, blah, blah, blah. So thanks to him, we've managed to, to keep it going for, for all this time. I love it. Uh, Jeff, do you feel like you know the ins and outs of Patreon at this point? Do you feel like a seasoned vet? Uh, I don't know about seasoned okay. vet per se, but uh, you know, it's uh, I I was able to kind of bounce some ideas off some folks prior to launching who had been there for a long time, and 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 that was extremely helpful. Also, Patreon themselves were like, 
hey, you know, we'll we'll give you a round of feedback too. And and so I was able to kind of at least tap into some minds who have been doing that for a while. There's a lot of stuff you know, like inherently when you're like, oh, here's how you are, you know, building a kind of a premium content thing, a subscription content thing. Like there's stuff that you just kind of learned that I think still applies. Yeah. But it's a very different thing when you're like, okay, this is literally me. And if, if I don't do it, it doesn't get done. And like that, you know, that, that changes a lot of like, okay, what am I actually signing up for here? How, how many hours can I literally do this and still be sane and on all that yeah. sort of stuff. So it's been a lot of figuring that out. Well, welcome to the rest of your life. I don't want to, I mean, we've been around for coming up on three years. And it's been three years of how many hours can I do this and stay sane? What is that right balance? There's a way to do this where it's comfortable. And there's a way to do this right. where you can burn yourself out and there's never going to be anybody tapping you on the shoulder to say, hey, by the way, cool it, buddy. Um, I think it's just a nice right. lesson that like, yeah, the community's fine. You do a couple shows a week. How much content of Jeff Kurtzman can they really consume on a weekly basis? I think is the ultimate challenge, right? Yeah, you know, at this point, I'm, it's like nine hours a week that I'm throwing out there. So That's ridiculous. it's uh, that's amazing uh okay this is i don't want to dive too much in the deep end but i feel like just from uh being a fan of yours gersman i feel like over the last couple years you've done a lot of like what should a gaming website look like these days what should a game review look like these days i mean your halo infinite review is just mainly unpacking that topic and from my perspective i was listening to that screaming it's patreon jeff patreon seems like the right outlet for you does it feel like you've solved some of those questions that you've been trying to wrestle with for years with this new outlet sort of kind of i I think in in some ways it's like because i still think there's like well how what would you do with a website in this day and age Mm -hmm. and i think the answer is oh you wouldn't right you know like because if you think about it what is the point of a website? Well, that's the, what is the point of a website as a business? I guess actually is what we're saying here, because then it's like, okay, well then you got to play all these SEO games. You got to build this, build that, you know, you're, you're trying to turn pages to sell ads, blah, blah, blah. And you can't really the the established players in the space are so entrenched that the idea of breaking through and having something that's going to be like huge, huge, huge from a page view perspective is ridiculous. You yeah. know, you see a lot of smaller sites coming. I mean, you know, we, I was, I was at that last place for about 14 years and we had a lot of ideas about like, Oh, this wiki could solve those problems. This could do this. They never quite got there. They were, it was nice. And I love that wiki. I still, that's going to be my downfall is I still have a sick thing in the back of my head. That's like, I'm going to build a great video game wiki. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. I just need to find some engineers and what and, and, and the sicker part is like, I know exactly what to do now because I know how wrong it went last time. And I'm like, okay, all right. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's eventually going to be my undoing is I will like somehow like dump whatever money I have set aside into that and, and ruin it all. But the, (laughs) but at the end of the day, you know, it's the, the other part of it is like the, it's, it's not necessarily about the website. It's not necessarily about the editorial coverage. It becomes more about like, how do you do a personality driven business in this day and age? And I think the answer to that is you don't do it for a company that is going to put you onto some kind of corporate ladder and say like, all right, now do your employee reviews and now you need to have these direct reports and you need to be your editorial director too. And that means you can get paid this, but not this. And you can do this. You know, it's such a different, the, the line of work that I have been in is so not that, that to try to treat it like it was any other publication or website and be like, well, you're an associate editor and you're a senior editor. And like all of that sort of stuff just doesn't make any sense at all. 
Right. And, uh, you know, being rammed into this is something that, you know, CBS did for years. You know, you just get rammed onto the standard corporate ladder, which assumes that you want to ascend it uh, and assumes that you eventually want to become some kind of like behind the scenes, middle management sort of person. But like in a personality driven business, that's kind of not the levers that drive it. Uh, and so it was, it was a big part of like, okay, like I, I don't, I actually, and this is something I think I've felt in different degrees for, you know, since like 2012 or, you know, whenever it was that the company was sold to CBS in the first place was just like, yeah, I don't, I don't know that this makes sense. Uh, well, that's the eternal struggle, right? Is the whole create, you know, when you're a creator, a creative type, you know, and you're doing creative things and then you're doing them well and you're getting successful at it, inevitably, you know, you kind of move up that ladder and people start to expect you to move into management positions and not all creative types want to do that sort of thing. I mean, some of, I mean, you especially, dude, you've been doing this for as long as I have, if not longer. I mean, we, we kind of started around the same time, I know, but like to yeah. see you still at it after all this time to me is like, it's kind of inspiring. It's like, wow, okay, he really stuck with it and stuck to it. And so, you know, you are your own brand and you're doing your own thing, but you, you sort of, you know, I, I feel like doing it for yourself really was a, a smart and kind of maybe the best move because now you only answer to yourself. And, you know, at the end of the day, you're, you're kind of making this show for you as much as for everyone else, right? The stuff that you do, you kind of want to talk about the things you're interested in. You don't want to maybe sit there looking at charts all the time and figuring out what people, you know, yeah. want. I mean, you want to engage with your audience to a degree. I'm, I'm sure both of you guys are, are really concerned about that, but you, you know, with what your audience wants, but you, you have to, at the end of the day, you got to kind of do what, what makes sense for you, you know, and what sound, what's cool to you. And that's hard to do, man. It's hard to pull off. Not everyone can do that. So I'm very happy for you. Yeah. Do you feel, Jeff, that um, not to Thanks, yeah. you know, minimize like everything that you went through and, and ups and downs and sagas that uh, will maybe be unpacked someday, but do you feel like everything's for the best now? Are you at that point yet? Or is it still too recent? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, there's still, you know, like I said, it was 14 years. It's very hard to unplug from that. But yeah. the... The thing that, you know, the other part of this that happened is like, there's a part of me that's been preparing for this since we sold the company, because there comes a time when you're no longer an independent entity. It's no longer your name on the door. And you're like, okay, they own it. It's up to them to figure out what they want to do with it. And I will have influence over that up to a point. But if they've got other business concerns that are, are elsewhere that result in us kind of never getting the attention that we wanted in terms of hiring up or all this other stuff again you know 10 years ago we were we went into that situation telling john davison hey we've been working like a startup because we have been a startup and now we're not a startup anymore and now we need people because i am not going to give you 20 hours a day and the response was oh yeah of course but that never that didn't exactly immediately lead to like and we're letting you hire nine people you know anything like that right. so you know it's 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 that feeling of just like you know and and, and Dave Snyder, who's one of the, the engineers that helped build the site to begin with, he pulled me aside as we were the day we were signing the paperwork to sell to CBS. And he said, you need to detach yourself from this because you don't own it anymore. Like, it's not yours. And you need to be prepared for like your not every decision is going to be yours to make. And so I, I failed to take that advice because if I had, I probably would have left three years after I got there, which was kind of the original plan, honestly. Um but there just kept being reasons to stick around and stick it out and like, oh, this is just like right around the corner. We're going to do this right around the corner. We're going to do this and right around the corner. We are gonna do this. And, oh, right. cool, cool, cool. Um, and we did some some pretty awesome stuff, I think, there. But a lot of it was stuff that was just like some of it was like pulling teeth. You know, it was just like to, to actually get things done in that type of environment. Um, you know, 
management changes, all this other stuff. Sometimes times would be good. It would be very easy to get things done. I think when we first got there, like John was a great advocate for us and, and he was awesome, but he wasn't there long before he split off to go. I think he went right to Glixel not long after that. But, um, you know, th there was just a, and, and then you'd have management that was bad and you're like, okay, now I'm like fighting this uphill battle and I have to make these pitch decks and they're going to look at them and nod their head and then never talk to me about them again and blah, blah, blah. You know, and you go through enough cycles of that and you're just like, I, this is pointless. This is crazy. So I think that's the thing I learned in some sense, like timing wise, this all worked out perfectly because, you know, um, I was often under contract and was not in a position where I could leave. I know it's something I feel like every time I saw John, whenever you and Mark would come over for GDC, I feel like we would just have one quick conversation about like be going like, yeah, I'm thinking this thing's just about done. <laughs> I'm thinking I might be getting out of here next year or something like that. Or, you know, and for whatever reason, I'd resign and, you know, whatever reason it would, it would keep going for another cycle. But like this this last year or so, um, you know, those other guys left and I was in the middle of having, you know, my, my wife was pregnant and all this other stuff. And it was just like, OK, I'm I'm sticking it out here and there's some cool ideas and we're going to try and execute on that stuff. And then got to a point where it's like, okay, nah, that's, it's not, it's not going to happen the way I need it to happen for me to really care about it. And so it's long past time for me to get the heck out of here. And so I did. Yeah. One way or the other. Yeah. It's um, just uh, listening to your podcast. It's fun to hear you try new ideas. You feel really energized in an exciting way, just as a fan. Like it feels like you feel like you're running kind of like a solo radio station, which feels like an avenue that you've always kind of wanted to hit at times. Yeah. I mean, I, I did radio for a brief period of time in the nineties. Um, a, a very brief couple of, of stints there where Joe Fielder and I and Lauren Gonzalez, then Fielder, uh, were hosting the official PlayStation radio show. It was when we were all part of Ziff. We were all wow. part of the Ziff family. So it was like OPM, the side thing where we were doing radio, but Sony had some weird approval over. It was a really strange thing. Um, and then prior to that, I did some radio as well. So just, when podcasting came along, I knew that that was a thing that mattered. I knew that was a thing that was going to eventually be huge. And it took forever for it to be something that people could make money doing. But, um, you know, it, it got there. And it's something that I've, I've always been super passionate about. So it was definitely that feeling of like, I know I can... I could walk out of here and start a podcast tomorrow. We'll be successful. I, I, that I'm less certain of, but I, I know enough to know that I can hit these buttons and make this happen and that'll be super fun. And hopefully people will dig it. And so far so good. Yeah. Right on. Congratulations. Uh, Thanks. well, Hey, we're going to talk about more than just, just uh, Jeff Gerstmann on this podcast, I swear, but it'll probably yeah. come up a time or two. Uh, but no, we're going to be talking about game history. Going to be talking about live alive. Kelsey, you've been playing it. Yes. Yeah, a little bit. Awesome, awesome. Uh, then we're going to talk a little bit about Monster Hunter Rise Sunbreak. Uh, maybe some GTA 6 thrown in there. And then we have some wonderful questions people submitted over there on Patreon for the back half of the show. Um, thanks, everybody, for being here. This is kind of a, a dream team. It's a real dream panel. So thanks, everybody, for taking the time, rescheduling things, making it all line up. Um, Kelsey, I'm trying to remember. Did you share on Twitter some of the things that Jeff Gersman donated to the Video Game History Foundation? Or is it just that when I visited it, you showed off some stuff? I know there's some connection between your foundation and Jeff Gersman's donations, but I don't remember exactly what they were. Yeah, so uh, the one I shared on Twitter was that there was a Bubsy plushie in the donation yeah. pile. I, I don't even know. Did you know? Well, I don't know how much you looked at all of the stuff you donated. Was it like yeah. I cleaned out the closet and threw it in bins? Or was it like careful consideration. Can I let go of the Bubsy plushie? 
it was it was careful consideration. It was okay. I, I picked up every single one of those objects and looked at it and said like, yeah, I I shouldn't just this shouldn't just sit here in this garage. Like I'm not going to be in a position to show that stuff off or showcase it or like put it on a shelf and truly appreciate it. And I think I just hit a point with a lot of that a lot of that stuff. And there's a lot more that I and I have a lot of magazines to send to you as well. Um, that I, I was just like, you know, this this stuff should be somewhere else. Um, yeah. And it should be somewhere where it can be like appreciated, documented, uh, auctioned off for charity. What, you know, what, whatever ends up becoming of it, you know, as, as cool as it is for me to have the Street Fighter, the movie film canister press kit that <laughs> they gave yeah. out Hell yeah. at the event they had, um, minus the microwave popcorn that didn't make it over the years no. that, yeah. but the, the sonic um, 3 lifesavers did for some reason so yes the, yes appreciate uh, that. Uh, yes and i i never i never tasted any of the sonic the hedgehog 3 lifesavers that they sold <laughs> that they sent out um do you think they're all gold are they going for rings or do you think it's just as ooh. basic as putting a bunch of lifesavers and slapping sonic's I think name it's on blueberry because it. it's, okay. it's like a blueberry flavored mm, thing okay. so I, I suspect that they are all like a sonic colored Sort of thing, like, but yeah, it, it was I definitely like your the case. Idea better. Thank yeah, you. Thank that's you so a way. Much. That's yeah. way better. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining this as a situation like uh, Andy at the end of Toy Story three, where he's trying to pass on his toys, and you're just holding up this Bubsy toy and remembering all the fond times you had with it before handing it off to the foundation. Kind of, but it's okay. more like huh, this thing. Whew, man. <laughs> well, um, you might you might feel worse about it if you know how much that thing is worth. Oh, um, I, I knew that going in. You know, okay. it, 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 that, was, that was kind of the other piece of it was just like, I know that there are not very many of those around. And, um, but I, you know, I'm, I'm going to sell it to someone and then they're just going to hoard it and hide it away forever. There's a part of me that's just like, if this foundation has it, then some hopefully something good will come of it again. Whether it ends like up displayed very nicely with exactly. uh, the rest of our Bubsy merch. Um, yeah, I just, figured just that maybe Frank listeners. would just steal it and just have it uh, at home. <laughs> but um, and I was fine with that too. <laughs> you know, uh, just so just so listeners are aware, we are building a Bubsy collection that's just sort of like it's it's probably not for any like grand historical purpose. It's well, just a fun on. thing to look at when you, uh, when you go into the office, into the library. So um, yeah, the Bubsy plushie is alongside um, a Bubsy mug, a Bubsy pin, a Bubsy standee. He's in very good company. Great. Um, and uh, yeah, that's sort of, that's like the piece of Bubsy merch. So it's, it's, it's really cool to have him finally home. Well, what I'm trying um, to figure out yeah. is like how much of that comes from, I know when you and Frank uh, and a bunch of other folks spent a lot of time at Game Informer archiving a lot of Game Informer stuff, uh, going through old press releases, you started with the A's. And so it was like when Frank first got there at Game Informer, it was just all Bubsy talk all the time because of Accolade, the publisher. <laughs> is that really how this got started? Is that what started the, the ball rolling was just the fact that it was published by an A publisher? I don't know. Bubsy's been kind of like a meme for a real long time, right? Okay, like, so you're adapting yeah. and adopting the meme. I see. Yeah. I mean, I feel like our other sort of um, close-to-home forgettable mascot uh, is Radical Rex. Um, <laughs> so we, But there's not nearly as much merch out there. We do have the, I swear to God, this is a real thing, uh, the Wiener Schnitzel Radical Rex Pog set. <laughs> it's cross-promotion between Wiener Schnitzel and Radical Rex. <laughs> Um, so we do have that, but there's not a whole lot of Radical Rex merch. But yeah, Bubsy's great. That's it. That's game history. Um, yeah. Okay. What was this about? You mentioned something, Kelsey, about when you were at Game Informer, you found an old magazine 
with Jeff Gersman's name on it? I did it. We found something from, it must have just been picked up at a CES or something like that. But it was clearly, you must have been like 17 or 18 years old. We did doing the math. And it was some little zine. Oh, at uh, controls. Yes. 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 Yep. That thing is uh, what we used to get press passes to CES. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so, so this actually, yeah. So I'm about to launch a new podcast on the Patreon where I'm going to be uh, chatting with Glenn Rubenstein, who is the, nice. the I guess, founder of, of that thing, um, because he started writing for the local newspaper when he was 14 years old, writing about video games. And he got swept up into the business and suddenly was in skyboxes at Mariners games with Nintendo and, you know, like all this other stuff. He was a part of the trial uh, where when Nintendo was suing Galoob over the Game Genie, oh, wow. he was a witness for that. And so... Uh, there's a lot of old stories that he and I have of like going to CES and a lot of the pre E three stuff and a lot of his stuff from even before he and I, um, started going to that, those things together that we're going to start getting into as like a, as like a Patreon exclusive, but yes, at the controls, this little four page zine thing that other zine authors of the, at the time were angry about because Glenn tried to price it. Like it was an industry newsletter giving like consulting advice and so yeah. it was like $250 a year or some insane thing like that. What? Um, and there was I a review of it. I think it's brilliant. I think that's yeah. hilarious. <laughs> I mean, you know, yeah. For a thing that like we were literally just like, yeah, here's our get our press pass into CES. And we're going to be at Kinko's two nights before we fly out to Vegas or Chicago um, printing this stupid thing up. It actually came back recently when... Um, Mutant Football League, not Mutant League Football, the old Genesis game, the the new one that, right, that Michael right. Mannheim also worked on. They were looking for press materials for the old Genesis game, or quotes they could use from that. And apparently in one of those zines, I said that Mutant League Football for the Genesis was like my sports game of the year or something. And so they contacted me and said, uh, Mike Myers, who was, doing from, who was doing PR for it, said like, hey, we want to use this quote. And I'm like, I didn't say that. He's like, no, you super did. And sent me a scan of it. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, okay, I guess I said it. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead and use it. Um, so yeah, that thing is is weird. But yeah, we uh, Ryan McDonald almost got in a fist fight with someone who else who wrote a zine at an arcade, at a Namco-owned arcade in Vegas because they didn't like that that zine was so expensive. <laughs> what the wow. hell? Damn, yeah, man. Is, yeah, a lot of Wild, Wild West. Is that what you remember, yeah. John? Is the that kind of rough and tumble vibe? I guess so. You know, I was thinking about this though because you know I, we kind of did. So my first CES was, uh, I guess it was it was like two CES shows before E three started. <clears throat> so not it was like ninety five or ninety four something like ninety four, I guess. And like we did similar stuff. We didn't have. I didn't have like a fanzine, but I had a, so I don't even know if it's okay to call it a fanzine. It sounds like it was maybe a little more professional than a fanzine, but I didn't have like a zine mm. basically. And um, we, but I worked at EB and so we would do the same thing. We would like kind of like print out business card, you know, EB business cards or whatever for our, we were just like a retail associate. I wasn't like a manager or something and just, you know, do whatever we could to get in um, to CES. And man, that was a great time though, because back then it was just like, you know, I, I mean, I was like, what, 20 years old or something. And like, you know, it was such a big deal to go there and just bring back everything you could from those shows, you know, like the, and I was, I was just moved recently. And so I was kind of going through my old stuff. And so this talk has me a little bit nostalgic for that because like, you're not throwing anything away when you're moving, right? 
No, well, I sent you guys a bunch of stuff too. Actually, okay. Frank got I, Frank got a couple <laughs> of boxes from me as well. No, nothing as uh, I thought as, so. Nothing <laughs> just... as esteemed as a Bubsy plush, that's for sure. But um, <laughs> but I did keep. I kept like every stupid press release and every little. I shouldn't call them stupid, but you know, every kind of things that now you would just be like, ah, whatever, and throw it away. But back then, as somebody who wasn't even really in the industry yet, it was just like okay, I want every single piece of anything related to games I can get my hands on. And so I still have all these old like pins and, and, you know, and, and the giveaways and press releases and press kits and stuff. And, and I'm of a similar mind as Jeff in, in that, like, you know, I, I, you know, I'm okay with, I don't want to sell this stuff, but I also don't want to have it sitting in a closet forever. And so I kind of went through a similar thing last year when I was moving a lot of this stuff back from America to Japan. Finally, after 20 years, I finally moved stuff here. Oh, wow. And uh, I was going through all that and I sent a bunch of stuff over to Frank, you know, like just different weird press kits and, you know, like uh, comics, like the Virtua Fighter comic that Sega gave out mm-hmm. and like all this random stuff. Um, but it's fun to go through all that. Give me good, good memories of the of the olden days. Yeah, I love I, it. It's I such have a, a distinct. When I think about the preservation of this material, there's one night that comes that keeps coming back and haunting me. So I was like you at CES. I grabbed everything, but I had no way to get most of it home. And so we would get to a point where it's like, oh, I have like three suitcases full of press kits and press releases and all this other stuff here. And there's nothing I can do with it. And there was one night it was like myself and Glenn and Ryan McDonald, who was West coast editor for game informer by that point and Andy McNamara and Paul, who was part of the original um, team at game informer. And we literally just started making paper airplanes out of all of it and throwing it out the window <laughs> because we knew there was no way we were going to be able to get it home. Oh, and no. We had perhaps had some drinks, and so we're like we're literally like throwing pizza out the window. Just all this, like just the <laughs> dumbest, like most seventeen-year-old thing you could be doing. Uh, just and and I, it haunts me because I'm just like, oh, there's so much stuff that I would have loved to have been able to hang on to, so that I could have sent it into the foundation by now. Uh, right. and, but like, there was just no way to get any of that stuff home. It was more than more than a person could carry. <laughs> I mean, just the fact that you were grabbing these things to begin with already puts you ahead of, I mean, it's, it's the reason we have anything, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, when you think about why someone would want to collect all of the press releases and hang on to them for years, like there's not a whole lot of motivation and a lot of it has to do with uh, being someplace like Minneapolis where you simply have space for it, yeah. <laughs> like Andy McNamara did. Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, just everyone is forgiven of their sins of throwing some stuff out because uh, it, it happens so much that I'm just like, but you didn't throw it all out. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's also like, an, it's a kind of a reflective of the times too, right? I mean, 1994, for example, if I think about it, I don't even think I was on the internet. I guess I was just getting on the internet, like probably that year or something. And so like, it's not like information which is widely available. And so if you were an enthusiast for game stuff, you you just wanted literally anything you could get your hands on. It was, you know, and before that, like magazines, like your, your magazine would show up to your house, you know, once a month and it was like Christmas every that day, you know, like your Nintendo Power or EGM or whatever would show up and it was like, okay, you know, cancel all their plans. I'm going to sit here and pour through this magazine for like the next, you know, 72 hours or whatever. And it was similar thing when you went to those shows. It was like, okay, I, I have no other way of getting any kind of information. So even for a game like Bubsy that maybe I'm not super excited about myself, I still want to take every last thing I can get about this game, you know? <laughs> and so that's kind of was the thinking back then. And it wore off after time, especially as the internet, more of this information became available and you have to weigh how much of that stuff you can carry home or ship home or how much you actually need or whatever. But at the time, it was just like, take everything you can get and take multiples of it sometimes, yep. too, just in case. Definitely. You know? I love it. It's such a fascinating line for when 
one's personal nostalgia kind of bleeds into history. And I guess that's kind of your career in a lot of ways, Kelsey, is just people are collecting this. You know, John has so many keepsakes and whatnot because he loves that era of his life and he loves the game industry. And then eventually at a certain point, it's like, oh, no, now actually this is becoming a different form of history. This is kind of a collective history of an industry. And that slow transition is really bizarre to see. If you wait long enough, everything becomes important. (laughs) <laughs> or extremely unimportant. This is, I mean, the ultimate question is like, what, what is valuable over time? You know, I was just thinking the other day about like, this is a really sad thought, but I was just looking out a window in my kitchen and thinking, you know what I wish I had? I wish I had just like, I wish I filmed myself just using my computer in like the mid nineties for just hours. I just want to see all of that interface stuff. I want to see exactly how slow everything was going. And it's so tough to try and get a sense of like, what is going to be valuable over time. Um, as a historian, Kelsey, do you have any insight into what is valuable over time and what we should prioritize now? Yeah, I mean, that's hell of a question. But uh, <laughs> in, in general, I mean, what, what tends to be important about history is that we have the information. I mean, that sounds really, really oversimplified, but it's like, we need to be able to do more than just play an old video game if we want to have any sense of understanding of like, you know, where did this industry come from and how has it changed and where did it go? Why did people make these decisions? Um, And so I think when people talk about uh, video game preservation or video game history, I think a lot of the focus, at least recently, and especially because of things like the eShop closures and that sort of thing tends to be very, very focused on like, we're going to lose the ability to play some games. And that's also terrifying. Um, But I think that even more terrifying than losing the ability to play a game is losing everything about that game. Like, what were people saying about it? How was it made? How was, um, you know, why was it made? Uh, How did people react to it? Um, You know, so in terms of, like, individual artifacts, like, what should people be collecting right now? We're past the paper period of society (laughs) like companies aren't printing press releases anymore for the most part they're not like handing out a bunch of flyers at shows i mean uh we did gdc earlier this year and we picked up every single piece of paper on the show floor but just as important as that was like taking photos of the show floor taking videos of the show floor talking to people um I think just being able to capture kind of the experiences of what's going on and and talking to both players and developers and stuff like that's always going to be um, it's always going to inform more um, for historians and for, you know, future people who want to learn about the past than just the old video game. I mean, at this point, Bubsy is a great example, right? Like everyone just kind of knows it as a bad game, but how many people could tell you like, why did this come about and um, who made it? Who worked on it? Why were these decisions made? How did people react to it at the time? Because spoiler alert, they didn't actually hate it that much at the time. Like, or at least the magazines, like the amount of coverage that it got and the amount of marketing it got kind of, I think, tainted people's perception of it. They're like, well, if it's being talked about this much, it must be better than what I'm playing. Like, I, I just, I must just not get it. 
You yeah, know? this is sad that I know this totally. off the top of my head, but we have like a trivia show and we're reading the back of the box for Bubsy 3D recently and the quotes from the press were bizarre. Like one of them's like, the new standard for platforming in games. Another oh, one, wow. like the big blowout quote was, the water level is reminiscent of Mario 64. <laughs> I was like, okay, I guess if you have to include some sort of quote. So yeah. Dude, people- I have to talk about this because like, so our, you know, good friend of, of ours, uh, I think probably most of us in this room, um, Chris Johnston, CJ of uh, Player One Podcast, you know, we we famously gave him shit for years at uh, EGM because his quote is on the front of Bubsy 3D. <laughs> and it just says it says like stunning original Bubsy 3D climbs back to the top. Check it out. And then it's like EGM. And that's like up in the corner of the front of the box. And so we used to tease him about that all the time because, you know, who even knows back then how those things got chosen. But um, it was just funny because it was such a glowing quote for a game that was pretty much universally disliked, I feel like, within, you know, people who actually played it. So. Yeah, there's still the anomalies. Yeah, L2 Larson here wrote in on Patreon saying, what is one practical step video game enthusiasts can take to preserve games and help future historians? For example, should I be buying more games physically or keeping my console boxes? What do I do? I mean, I'm not super worried about retail video games. Uh, You know, the actual video games themselves, if it was on a disc, obviously this is getting more difficult now as there's like day one patches, you know, a DLC and all of that stuff. I'm not a brilliant engineer and I can't give you the solution to that. Those are huge problems. Um, but in general, like the games themselves, probably not in too much danger. What is in danger is um, it, like everything else surrounding the game, basically like people's reactions to it, pe- uh, gameplay of people playing it, um, maybe for the first time on Twitch or something like that. Um, advertisements about it tweets about it um Hmm. you know if you are able to obviously talking to developers and getting those stories and that sort of thing which ben you do a lot on on uh with midmax content which is awesome um but i think just you know making more records of of your time with this stuff is always helpful. If you want to do something like really cool and start a blog or something like that, I mean, that's, that's always going to be helpful for people in the future, but um, yeah, practically, I mean, it's, it's getting tougher and tougher uh, because we don't live. I mean, it's hard enough to collect things like paper press releases because a lot of those are, have disappeared, but those don't even exist anymore. So yeah. I have a, I have a giant, folder in my email inbox i'm like signed up for all the press emails and i just try to like throw everything in there and i'm like someday i'll get to this someday i'll just like be able to ingest all of these email advertisements and press releases and stuff that i'm getting and, and people can read those later but you know it, it takes a month to hit like another thousand of those so who knows <laughs> yeah uh, i don't know if you heard uh we interviewed reggie fils recently at MinMax, and he had the most frustrating answer for something or I asked him about like, hey, do you ever feel like an obligation to history to kind of unearth more of your time at Nintendo and just tell some stories about how these decisions were made? And his answer was just, well, I think you can tell the story of Nintendo from our press conferences. So if you're wondering about what happened at Nintendo, mm-hmm. just go look at our press conferences. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. That sounds, like, that sounds like something he would say. It's really horrifying, but you know, yeah. I guess. He's a businessman. Uh, Alex <laughs> K has an interesting question over on Patreon. Uh, they say, hey, with game development being easier than ever before, has there ever been any movement in the preservation community to reach out to small development teams and provide kind of best practice or guidelines on proactive preservation of development materials? Yeah, I've seen, uh, I mean, we've talked to some uh, studios and stuff about it. We're not experts in like 
the um, data management side of it, but in terms of, you know, what you should be keeping and stuff, I think it's, there's, there's at least guidance that uh, we can offer. The problem is we actually get a pretty good amount of like indie developers that are like, we'd like to just gift you our entire source repo. And I'm oh, like, great, that is, you know, an entire terabyte. And we have to now keep this entire terabyte duplicated and run it like this. That's forever. This is a cost we now have forever. And, uh, you know, they're, <laughs> it, it starts getting very expensive very fast. So right. um, there's a lot of stuff that um, I appreciate that people want to save. And I think, I think they should, um, but keeping it all uh, when you have like 50 indie companies or, or individual products, projects that are like, here's a terabyte of data. It's like, I don't know that I can afford to constantly keep all of this running for you as right. a backup right now. Yeah. John, do you deal with this at, at eight four much? I mean, I know you're working on a lot of big projects. Congratulations on the new Fire Emblem Warriors and stuff. I mean, is there anything you can do on your end with eight four to help preserve game history from the stuff that you work on? Maybe not the Nintendo stuff per se, but some smaller projects. Well, that's a that's an interesting kind of sticky question, right? Because I mean, on one hand, of course we, I would love to, but like, yeah, we don't, you know. We're kind of a, we're kind of mercenaries. We're kind of work for hire, and so we don't really own a lot of that stuff. So it's not our place to do it anyway, even if we could. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so as much as I would love to, like it's not, uh, it's just not something that we usually have the rights to do. If it's something where you know we are actually the rights holder, which is pretty rare, but maybe it's like a game we're publishing or something like that. There's you know to some degree we can maintain some of that stuff, but. We as sort of the middleman in a lot of these exchanges, I, I often tell people, they're like, oh man, you worked on this game or that game and it sold so well, that must be awesome. And I'm like, dude, like Monster Hunter World can sell 20 million copies or it can sell one copy. We make the same money in the end. We don't, you know, we don't do better if the game does better or whatever. We're, we're that kind of company. And so in the same sense, we don't really have the rights to a lot of this stuff. So, And that's, um, that's another entire, you know, can of worms that we have to deal with too, because a lot of times people do want to gift us things that they don't, like, again, I can hold it for you and we can figure out the legal stuff later. But if you don't actually have the rights to give it to me, I don't have the rights to do anything with it either. <laughs> right. We'll, we'll all get in a bunch of legal trouble. So totally. you, you visited the uh, foundation recently. Uh, what's, uh, what are you working on these days, Kelsey? What's kind of the, the cutting edge questions, the big problems you're trying to fix over there these days, the big challenges? Uh, Oh man, um, there's so much stuff. I mean, I, I mentioned a little earlier that like what we mostly deal in is information rather than the games are themselves. You know, we um, we are a foundation that is for um, for telling the story of video games. So we want people to have all of the materials that they need to be able to really dig into you know the history of a game, its development, its reception, um, and all of that stuff. So uh, what we're working on right now is actually um, <laughs> like the most exciting part of it, which we're still sort of in the early days of, but um, like we're, we're building our digital archive right now as we speak. And so all the stuff we've been digitizing and been saving, um, we're finally, you know, on the cusp of uh, being able to start ha giving people more access to it outside of like, come to the office or ask me a specific question and I will retrieve it for you. So I'm, I'm really, really excited about that. Um, also, uh, uh, Michael Mentheim was mentioned earlier, and uh, which is pretty fun. The Mutant League uh, football, Mutant League hockey guy. We actually just 
acquired a bunch of his old uh, development materials. And sorry, my my bird has decided to chime in. That's well yeah, so he's got a bunch of old uh, development <laughs> materials from uh, his time. He was he was a game designer going all the way back. His first game was uh, Fester's Quest on the NES. Oh, which, really? You know, yeah, wow. a true classic, a, a total <laughs> classic. Um, but they, you know, he worked on a bunch of stuff that didn't ship. He worked on a bunch of uh, just concepts for um, things that probably didn't go places. Um, there were a couple of other Mutant League things in the works. Oh. So um, that's going to be really exciting to to get to share with people and he's and he's excited for people to to look at it too yeah uh hey kelsey i was listening to a podcast you're on uh, a while back um and you mentioned this game that uh, sorry this is a complete tangent but you mentioned that there is there was a pac-man game for the wonder swan that was using the gps like a in a pokemon go style way yeah <laughs> what, what was this um so there was a planned uh peripheral for the wonder swan that was a gps attachment for it and then there were three games announced that were going to utilize that for gameplay elements and yeah one of them was a pac-man game that i think just took the road data and like let you play pac-man kind of using the streets that sounds great that Um, sounds awesome but yeah that's it's totally cool weird (laughs) stuff there was also like a camera planned and some other uh, there were they got wild with that didn't they eventually do some kind of pac-man gps thing for ios did they I want to say that. Oh, I, they, wasn't it like a Google, like April? Oh, maybe that Fool's was just the. Yeah, maybe it was. Oh, yeah. Oh, interesting. That could be. Um, oh, also, Kelsey, uh, speaking of Wonderswan, um, have you played the Klonoa game on Wonderswan? Uh, I've played it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I haven't finished it, but I've played it. Okay. Because, yeah, we went down the Klonoa rabbit hole recently, and I was like, what? I, there's so many more Klonoa games than I ever thought of, including that one well, Moonlight Museum for the, the Wonderswan. It is, I think it's the Game Boy Advance one or the Game Boy Advance one is like just a updated version of that game. Oh, is my understanding. okay. So it's not like a brand new game in the Klonoa series. Yeah, gotcha. Uh, hey, if people want to help support video game history, Kelsey, where should they go? What should they do? Yeah, uh, check us out at gamehistory.org. Um, read some of the stuff that we've been up to. Um, we do have a Patreon, which uh, I am not a Patreon expert, but I do like <laughs> the way that we do it, which is uh, we don't really promise much because we're a charity and we're working on it. And uh, so like, I'm not, I'm not going to make like extra podcast episodes um, cause I'm busy. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I hate to say it, but like the best way to support us really is right now money because there are three of us working on this full time and yeah. we have tens of thousands of things to get through. And uh, you know, if we can afford to have maybe four people working on it or that sort of thing, I mean, it, that's really, um, or if we can afford to spend less time making sure that we can pay the three people, um, more gets done that way. So, uh, but also just, yeah, even not monetarily, um, check out what we're doing, share it around if you care about it, um, listen to our podcast, uh, Video Game History Hour. Hell yeah. And uh, yeah. I love it. I, was listening I to think podcast you're, you're underselling the Patreon because if you get on the Discord for the Video Game History Foundation, you get access to the Bubsy Litterbox channel. That's true. Which, yeah. is kept, which has kept me subscribed to that Patreon <laughs> since its inception. <laughs> We do have, yeah, we have a, a tier of our of our Patreon is for access to our Discord. It is a really good Discord. I'm very proud of our of our Discord community. It's um, it's all 
weird stuff in video game history and, and the Bubsy litter box is the best uh, posting community on the internet. So. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, I mean, this is uh, related enough to video game history, but Live Alive is a game that just came out in the West. Uh, Jeff, have you got a chance to check this out yet? Just the littlest bit. Okay. And I somehow like just lucked my way into choosing. I was like, oh, what's what chapter am I going to choose? I'm like, I'll try the present day because it sounds like Street Fighter. That sounds kind of cool. This yeah. guy seems like a Ryu kind of guy. It's like, oh, what's this? A fake Hulk Hogan. And just like stumbled <laughs> into a fight, like a wrestling ring fight with a fake Hulk Hogan. I'm like, this is very much a game that I am enjoying. And it is like, this is a lot more than I thought it was going to be. Uh, but that I've not played too much more than, okay. than that. I, I've, I've been watching some streams here and there. Uh, and I'm, so I'm, I'm a, like a little bit familiar with more of the game, but yeah, man, you, you chose the, you chose the right chapter. Uh, if you had to choose <laughs> one for you, that is it. Cause I was shocked yeah. going into that one. It's like, Oh, it's just, okay. We're just climbing a ladder, going through these fights and then end of chapter real quick little story. We're telling <laughs> right, here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John and Kelsey, you've been playing a little bit. I played a bit. Yeah. Okay. I just started. I'm actually really excited for this game. Um, historically, I guess, because, you know, <clears throat> I, I, t- I might've told the story on our podcast as well, but you know, I bought the original game back in 90, I don't know what it was four and five, whenever it came out in 96. Yeah. And, um, at the time, you know, I was just getting into importing and I had imported the super Famicom version and I, it was too hard to play because the Japanese was like at a level beyond, I was just starting out back then. And, but I was always super intrigued by this, like, you know, the guy who made Chrono Trigger and, and Final Fantasy four, and he's got this history of making cool game looked amazing. Um, but you know, I couldn't get into it. So now I'm excited that however many years later it is now, I actually have an opportunity to dig in, but, but I haven't, I've only played like, you know, an hour basically so far, just super busy. Yeah. I'm, uh, on my second to last chapter right now. And I don't know about the structure of this thing. I don't want any spoilers for what's going to happen once you finish all these or anything like that. Um, but I am freaking loving it. I, it, it is such a delight. It, it's to the level of like, why didn't people talk about this more? Like when they announced the remake, it was like, oh, I think I vaguely heard of that. But I mean, I don't know, outside of Toby Fox, I don't think anybody was really standing on the rooftops and really championing this game outside of Japan. Or have I just not been plugged in to people I raving think, about well, this thing? It's not something that most people have been able to play yeah. until now, you know? So, I mean, I think it's always, at least in my circles, I feel like it's always been known that it's, it is good, but that sucks. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people got into a fan translation of it. Okay. Yeah. A, a while back as well. So I, I don't know what the quality of that was. I haven't seen that for myself, but yeah, it seems like that there was probably a, a cluster of people whose curiosity was kind of sated by that fan translation and you know, they, they would play it and not necessarily rave about it. Um, but yeah, it's just it, it's an interesting choice for them to to bring back and and release worldwide, you know, for yeah. the first time ever and all this stuff. It, it's it's so cool that like some of those games that felt like those weird grails back in the day in terms of just like I just I cannot read the language. And so so I'm hoping that this leads to either a finally a fan translation or someone just gets it together and localizes uh, Sega Gaga for the Dreamcast. Oh, interesting. Oh my route. God, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's where, what are we, what are we, let's get, let's get serious here. There's been a fan translation in the works, but for like yeah. 20 years yeah. or something, right? Uh, yeah, like, yeah. We're, we're just clearly never going to get that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but John, yeah. you got to make this happen. Come on, <laughs> John, please. We're on it. I'll be on top. You have plenty of time off to the side, I'm sure. <laughs> just knock it out. You Come on. 
Uh, but yeah, Live Alive, this is the game. It's out on just Nintendo Switch. I, I just love that Nintendo's pushing this as hard as they can. I mean, they had the whole Treehouse Live dedicated to it around E3 time and all this. Like, for them to get behind this in such a big way, it's such a beautiful marriage between Square and Nintendo. And just trying to figure out, like, you know, streaming it. And so many people jumped in. They're like, this looks great. It looks amazing. I love the HD2D look. But why did this happen? How did this happen? It is just a bizarre mystery. And the really the only insight we have is, I guess, uh, Togata, the director um, who produced the remake here. Um, but he just said it was because of the Octopath Traveler team, that they're really impressed by what they did. And within Square, he's been trying to get this remake or sequel or something happening with Live Alive. And then the oomph from Octopath Traveler allowed him to work it out with Nintendo where they're, I don't know, I guess they're funding this thing like the collaboration is still murky. Sure, yeah it's not, i was wondering about that too because like they're the ones who send like send codes out to the press and stuff as opposed right. to like square direct and yeah you know they they put out what was it it was trials of mana like i don't know a year or two ago right which was another one of those like uh seiken densetsu 3 or like lost classics that had never right. gotten around to being released and you know maybe they saw uh a there was a lot of buzz around that and people were very excited to get this kind of old you know, lost game, so to speak. And they probably saw some excitement there, but also the HD 2D stuff is just, it looks so good. It's so gorgeous. I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that. You know, they're doing the Dragon Quest uh, 3 remake in right, that engine right. as well. Like, I think we're going to keep seeing more and more of these old games coming back in that form, and, and I'm here for it, man. It's great. Yeah, I would it really, really seems like there's just a, like, it feels like there would be much more of an audience for a game like Live Alive now than there probably would have been if they had localized it and put it out in like 94. Yep, you know? totally. Uh, yeah. And players, I think, just have become so much more open to a wider variety of games, even over the last five years. But, you know, especially over the last 10, 15, that it just it feels like the exact right time for a game like that and to to come out and thrive. And it's awesome to see stuff like that happening. Absolutely. We're seeing a lot of buzz for uh, Terra Enigma, too, which was a Ooh, another yeah. old um it, it came out uh, in Europe. There's an English version that came out in like Europe and Australia, but was never released in America. And that one too, even the, some of the creators of the game are, have like started a campaign in Japan. They're trying to get, they're like, come on, bring this game back in some form so people can play it today. So I'd so love nice. to see that one come back too. It's another game that I think would do better now than it probably, you know, did back then just because of the audience for that kind of game has, has grown so big. Yeah, just the structure of this thing. So it's seven different stories. You're jumping around between time, different characters and all this. And it's just awesome because it allows them to just make these short, really weird and really unique RPG experiences. It's like, hey, do you like two-hour RPGs? Here's seven of them packed in here. And they're all vary in size and scope and different features and mechanics and all that stuff. But I think just that structure allows them to do some really odd stories that they can never hang a full RPG experience on. Like, hey, here's the story of just this old Chinese guy trying to find his successor. Here you go. And it's just like a great little bite-sized RPG story, but no one's going to fund that in a big way. So you just get these funky little experiments that are just really unique. And also the tone of these things, Kelsey, I don't know if you've played enough to notice, it's all over the place. Some moments are incredibly dark. There's some really stupid fart jokes and poop jokes in here. It's just the tone is all over the place, but in a way that is really charming and unique, I think. I, yeah, I'm a fan of the writing in this game a lot. It's it is a little all over the place in tone, but um, in a way that's that's interesting. It doesn't feel like it doesn't feel bad in that. But I, yeah. I agree with you completely with the um, it, it really hits the right spot for me in just being bite sized experiences that, you know, I love RPGs and. Um, and I'm going to play Xenoblade Chronicles 3 when it comes yeah. out this week. There you go. Um, but they can't all be 
hundred plus hour experiences. I would love to have more things that are, you know, you can finish a story in two or three hours. I love that. Yeah. John, I don't know if you have thoughts on the writing, but I think this is the most mature thing I've ever seen Treehouse work on over there at Nintendo. I mean, there's the word in this game, everybody. They're, they're saying shit. Like, there's an implication of an orgasm. It's like, and there's some real adult stuff here for Treehouse. It's wild. <laughs> there was a time, there was a time when we were like jokingly kind of, um, known as the the company that got the most ESRB descriptors on a Nintendo published game for something we worked on back in the day for them because but you know that that was then and this is now but I don't know that Treehouse localizes do, do you know that was it done in-house at Nintendo or was it like done at Square and they just published it or I was wondering my question yeah too. I mean the fact that they did the whole Treehouse live segment led me to believe that they did probably work on it otherwise it'd be a weird choice but I guess I don't know for sure um, Could be, yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those games, though, I think that if they are going to publish it, you, you kind of need to do the, well, I guess from a Nintendo's perspective, for, for someone like me, this is like the greatest thing ever, I'm going to be there day one, but maybe for the yeah. mainstream consumer, they need, some, you know, that kind of widespread, hey, you got to know what this game is and what it's about and why it's cool. You know, it's crazy to me that this game was made in 1994 originally, though, because at the time to have something like this that's so, you know, unique in, in, in like, a, like you just said, like a game that has a bunch of short stories effectively and, and is kind of going against the grain when everybody is trying to copy Dragon Quest and Final Fantasy at the right. time. And then here's this game that's so unique and original. I, it's, it's really was ahead of its time. Yeah. And it's so cool that just took it to the director gets to go back to this in some way, because like we visited Square Back at Game Informer for the Final Fantasy 15 cover story trip and got to meet Tokata. And it was great. And but he was talking about Final Fantasy Brave Exvius on phones. Like that was his big project. <laughs> it's like, God, it just it sucks to see the co-director of Chrono Trigger like being proud of this mobile game that we're all gonna be like, yeah, hey, we might check it out, you know. But just to see him go back to something so unique and great and oh, just the soundtrack, like Yoko Shimamura did the soundtrack. And like for the Wild West section in particular, it's so damn good. Oh. Dude, the music in that game is so great. You know, is the the Japan um, bit? I forget which era it is, but you know, the one where you're basically sneaking around and right, you can, like right. the music in that is like straight out of Street Fighter Two. And she did the Street Fighter Two soundtrack yep. too. It almost made me wonder, like, did you just like, were you short on time and you were like, okay, I'm going to grab this and rearrange it? If you actually <laughs> listen to those two tracks side by side, it's surprisingly similar. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I like that. I like what they've done with the game overall. They've streamlined a lot of it, and I don't think it was in the original, John. Correct me if I'm wrong, but just having that map in the corner, was that map in the original? I actually don't remember because, okay. like, I, again, it was so long ago, but the, the map is actually really handy. They oh, did make amazing. it more accessible for sure. Yeah, so with the map, it just tells you, hey, there's going to be an orange uh, icon that'll tell you the next place to advance the story. And here's for like a lot of these old RPGs, that is just a game changer. It's like, hey, here's the person that you talk to to actually move things along a little bit. You don't have to talk to anybody. Also, we'll show you like the rooms. It's almost like a Resident Evil 2 remake style thing with that map. We're like, we'll show you a room that you haven't been yeah. in yet, and then it'll turn blue when you've been in it. It's just so nice to be able to check things off that list. And it's like, that's all you need for some of these old RPGs, just to speed it up a little bit. But you can also mm -hmm. skip through stuff if you need to, but... Uh, yeah, I think in terms oh, wow. of like patience for older games, like that is one of those things that I, I think people need to embrace that kind of thing a little bit more. Like when companies are re-releasing games to so just have a couple of those little quality of life things, because we just this isn't the one game we got from Blockbuster this weekend anymore. And there's just there's no desire to like bang our head against the wall. So if you want someone to experience an older RPG um, or an older game in general, it's like you got to give them some tools to to speed it up a little. Yeah. Once a year, I start Fantasy Star 2. <laughs> Dude, and I get I about an hour and a half in, and I go, man, I love this game. I always loved this game. I remember finishing this game, and then I 
never touch it. And then I, a year <laughs> passes and I start from scratch all over again and I get to the exact same spot. It's like, ah, oh, what a great game. But yeah, if, if they did things to the encounter rate and you know, like there are always things you can do, especially to those, to that era of RPG to just try For to sure. tune those games in a way that like, Hey, let's, let's get the gist of this gameplay here. Leave the original in there intact, but you know, speed it up a little bit. Let me see the story. You know, hold my hand just a little bit to to get me through this because I mean, even that game when it came out in the states came with a gigantic strategy guide. So even then, they were like, ah, "You kids are going to need some help." <laughs> yeah, no Dude, the rewind and the fast forward functions that are showing up in a lot of these like uh, retro compilation stuff, yeah. I, I love it. Like at at some point, I would have yeah. been like, you know, when I was younger, I'd been like, "Ha, that's not really how you play the game." But now I'm like, "No, give me, I want to." I want to a I want to just go back two minutes if I fuck up because I don't yep. have all day and like B I you know just want to be able to fast forward through stuff as much as possible if I need to and it's super handy to have that I want every I think the state of like retro what do you want to call them like compilations or whatever is maybe there's room for improvement because I feel like more all of them should have these features or like what you just said like you should be able to speed up the game but not also speed up the music like there are right. ways to do it where you can make the game still feel like a mod like a like a like a normal experience but just be able to get through it so much faster and and I want to see more of that because I love going back I finished Phantom Star 2 last year for the first nice. time and uh I did it on the PS3 was a PS3 version it's so complicated there was no there's a PS2 version that was available for download on PS3, PSN, at least in Japan, which also had the English build. Like the Sega Ages PS2 yeah. version. Oh, really? yeah. Yeah. Because it has like, you can speed up the walking speed and everything times four, but it doesn't mess with the music and stuff. So it's not ruining, the, making the game feel weird when you play it. And I, and I actually I've, finally got through it. Nice. Uh, yeah, I hope if you're interested in JRPGs and just, you know, some might say uneven, but good and funky rpg experiences you should you should check out live alive i i hope folks check it out and that it moves some needles for square and nintendo i mean obviously i mean john do you think in our lifetime we'll see the hd2d version of chrono trigger do you think this will bump and, them in that direction maybe you know i would love to but at the same time and, and this is people are going to hate me for this like i i'd rather they put their resources into something that's never come out period you know what i mean yeah. like i chrono trigger is on ds there's a really great version i think there's a version on pc i i i would love to see more of these kind of games but i want to see more i don't there's never been an official localization of like bahamut lagoon or like treasure hunter what was it called i g i forget the name now there's a bunch of like square late era square rpgs that you know the 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 consoles were shifting at the time. And so it didn't really make sense to localize these like 1995, 1996 games because people right. were already moving over to the next thing. There's a lot there to pick from. So bring, bring them over. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we'll hey, play the fan translations if you're curious. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I just played through tomato adventure earlier this year and it freaking rules. <laughs> Very happy to see that. <laughs> That's really fun. Uh, hey, Kelsey, real quick. Uh, much on rise Sunbreak. You've been playing it, enjoying it. Yeah, I have. I'm excited to talk about it. Although, um, it's funny because I have mostly been playing regular Rise because I had to pull my boyfriend through the entire base game to uh, to get to the DLC. Oh man! Content. But <laughs> um, yeah, so I mean, if you're not super familiar with Monster Hunter, the way it worked in the past was Japan would kind of get like a base version of a game and then a kind of updated version of the game, and then that's the one that we would get here in the states. We'd get it all together when it was like a a fully you know finished experience but now monster hunter is getting uh getting big enough on uh in the states that they're we're just keeping in pace with japan so we're getting the the base version and then they're doing like a dlc thing so um 
Sunbreak is technically DLC for Monster Hunter Rise, but it is, you know, a whole new, like it, tons of hours of content and that sort of thing. Um, it is, if, if you have not gotten into Monster Hunter yet, I think this is like the best time to do it. It's more, if not worlds, like this or world are the ways yeah. to get in. It's way more accessible than ever. Um, there's way more tools at your disposal. You no longer have to have spreadsheets in front of you as I used to do when I was playing like for you. Um, <laughs> I love it. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, it's great. It's, it, it adds a bunch of new monsters. I don't, it didn't add nearly as many monsters as Iceborne did for World, which is maybe a little oh, disappointing, really? but I've really liked to see um, a little bit more. But uh, I mean, most of my favorites are back. Uh, like Astalos and Seregios and stuff get some cool monsters in there. Um, they've pretty much completely done away with the rampage quests, which were like uh, tower defense kind of thing. Like the, always, oh, that's weird. Right. Yeah, it, they weren't very good. Um, they were kind of novel for like a minute, and then uh, and then anytime it was like a required thing, it was just no, not fun. So they've just completely dropped that and, and focused instead on on some new stuff. Um, the new kind of cool thing in this game is that there are some quests where you can take an NPC um, along with you and they act like a real human player. Like they're very sophisticated AI. They will go run to another area and uh, you can ride monsters in this game and kind of like make them fight against each other, which is a very, very cool mechanic. Um, So they'll like leave the area to go grab one and uh you know make them fight nice. and stuff so they're they're very very good ai from what i've seen so far at least um and just you know they always do some quality of life improvements and some like new layers of systems um i've been playing monster Hunter a fairly long time at least for an american uh, <laughs> but um i've always thought that it's maybe a little bit too systems heavy. Um, so there's a couple things they've added here that I'm really not interacting with. Like they changed, um, there's another um, eating mechanic you can do where you can like reorder the, you can put the, um, you eat things that can give you different like stat boosts basically before right, you right. go out and hunt. And they have a percentage chance of actually activating. And now you can like order them in specific ways to make it more likely for them to activate. And I'm like, this is just too much thinking. Um, I'm just, I'm just not going to deal with that. Um, they made, like- they, they improved and expanded on like the, the switch skills um, and the, the wire bug skills and stuff, which are just, again, it's just tons and tons of systems, but it, it remains a really awesome action game. It remains, I think like the best game to play with friends. Um, I, wow. I'm having a really, really good time with it. And uh, yeah, like I said, if you, if you are curious about monster hunter, um, and have never gotten into it. This is a really, really good starting point. You will have to go through the entire base rise game, but um, they give you a ton of like very good material to start off with to make going through that kind of a, a breeze. Yeah. So I, I'm very curious. Uh, there were just some, some leaks recently from well, like Discord, some back end Discord stuff that apparently Monster Hunter Paradise for the Xbox and PlayStation was leaked out there, which seems like it's the successor to World then. Ooh. Mm. Yeah. Which, John, wasn't there a bet on the podcast about uh, whether or not World would be called World 2 or whatever? You know, we have so many bets at this point that I can't even keep track. <laughs> you gotta I, write them I, down, I, I owe so many stakes to so many people. Yeah, I, I don't know. I was just thinking, though, as you were... So, you know, 
just for the record, you know, we worked on a bunch of Monster Hunter games. We didn't we didn't work on this one. Um, and so I, I don't know anything that, that you guys don't know. But um, it was uh, interesting to me that World came out on, you know, it was like, oh, at last it's on all the modern platforms, right? It's, it's gone yeah. off the handheld. It's, it's, a, it's a mainstream thing. Sold a bazillion copies. You know, Iceborne followed it, and then it just sort of went to Switch, and now it's become a Switch thing again. It's like, wow, that's really interesting. Capcom, you know, they must be cooking something up for the main. After World did so well, there's no way they're just sitting around, like, you know, d- deciding to go Switch only. So yeah, whatever it's called, if that's it, I would not be surprised at all that something's on the way because it was too, it was like the, their biggest success ever. I think it was their number one selling game of all time. I mean, they kind of like almost saved the company from getting sold in a way. It felt like they yeah, been on the ropes there for a while. Yeah, for totally. sure. And yeah, uh, not to keep going back to the Game Informer era, but like we got to visit uh, Osaka twice for like the Iceborne and the Monster Hunter World cover story back then. And so it's interesting because Takuda, I'm uh, butchering the pronunciation, forgive me, but he was the director of uh, Monster Hunter World. And then for Iceborne, there was a different director, but he was there. It's kind of like, oh, I'm just overseeing things. I'm working on my own thing. And whatever he was working on hasn't come out. So I'd imagine that is then Monster Hunter Paradise. And he's going to be directing that thing coming up. I think you're, I think you're probably right. And, and just, you know, for we've worked on so many Monster Hunter games for so many years that it's actually kind of. And, and we're also we've been big fans. We championed it on our podcast for yeah. years and years, you know, when nobody would play it. But, you know, we just kept pushing it. And so it's so satisfying now to see that it's become so big but you know it's very exciting to be on this side now to not actually know what's coming or where and everything and i'm just like i'm stoked to see what he does next because i thought world was you know i mean it was just such a such a evolution i feel like of of the franchise in terms of just like you know because it was so nice and it just it had some problems, but it did a lot of things to make it more accessible to people. And so I feel like totally Tokuda is the man and who did that. And so I definitely want to know what he's working on next. And I don't, and that's exciting. Yeah. So. You don't, you no longer need someone to hold your hand and teach you how to play a monster hunter for several hours. I mean, that's when I got into the series, like it, that's what it was. It was a commitment and yep. someone who had already been playing for a while had to commit to spending, you know, like a couple hour sessions with you uh to teach you things and remind you like oh don't forget you got to bring the hot drinks here oh you didn't put on your armor skin like it's it's a it was an ordeal and uh there's so many it's it's so much easier to get into now i don't think you need a person anymore to get you into monster hunter and uh you know like that literally should be the tactic was like recruiting people we we did monster hunter meetups at my store um after hours every wednesday for um i think three you and four you generations and like it, it basically until world um and i still really love portable monster hunter uh, just for that kind of aspect of it but i mean yeah like i said we had spreadsheets in front of us and you'd invite people in and be like okay take a look at the sheet and we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna walk <laughs> through these fights and yeah I'm glad we're out of that era. I'm glad anyone, everyone can enjoy it now. Yeah, Great. yeah. I got into World after after years of right. uh, having John say, "You really need to check out Monster Hunter," and then, <laughs> and then Brad eventually somehow got infected into playing Monster Hunter, and so it was like I, I became a lot much like it, it. It kept getting closer and closer and closer, and I'm like, yeah. Uh, and then when World <laughs> came out, it was finally at a point where it's like, oh, you've found a way to polish this up. It doesn't. It didn't feel like they lost what made that game great in a lot of ways. Not that I would know again, but uh, but the game became so much more approachable. That I man, I I sunk dozens of hours into World, but yeah. I don't feel any draw towards Rise for some reason. I think part of me is waiting for like a full fledged like yep. this is the true follow up to World. 
I'm totally with um, you. And it's not even just a visual thing, but just, you know, the reviews have been solid for Rise and, and yeah. Sunbreak, but I think not enough to, to lure me back in. It's like, I can wait another year or two and then jump into a, a huge next-gen version of that. I think if you don't have the experience already of, like, sitting around in person with, pe- with people and playing it on a portable system, like, you have no reason to miss that. I'm, like, weirdly nostalgic for it, and mm. John, maybe you are too, but... Uh, World, I love World. It was, it is the best Monster Hunter game, hands down. But I did miss, you know, it was, it was a little annoying because it's like, okay, what system are we all getting it on? Because right, right. otherwise, we're fracturing the the group. And uh, okay, are you online at this time? And uh, you know, it it was just a little, um, a little less intimate. But uh, I mean, still, still the best one. So. Yeah. Uh, hey, real quick, uh, today while we're recording, uh, Bloomberg, Jason Schreier over there had an article about GTA 6, you know, and they, they confirmed that they're working on it a while ago, and there's kind of been rumors bubbling up. I mean, Gersman, you've been talking about this for, feels like years now, about the, the right. bubbling rumors yeah. of GTA 6. But this is the first time I was like, oh, here's some some real reporting on some insight into what this thing is. So, Jeff, you, you skimmed the article a little bit. What stand yep. out? What stood out to you? Well, I think, you know, t- to me, the, the standout here is that really what this article about, what, what Trier is reporting on here at, at Bloomberg is that Rockstar has maybe found a way to be a little less Rockstar. Right. The, yeah. the one constant, and I'm sure, you know, we, we all probably have our Rockstar stories over the years. Um, that company has been monstrous at times when yeah. it comes to dealing with the press. But, you you know, then you would hear little bits and pieces about stories about what it's really like internally. And it sounded so much worse just in terms of, you know, what crunch was like there and, and how they maybe treated some of their employees and just, you know, some of the way some of that stuff went. And um, it sounds like a, a big part of this is that they really tried to change the culture there away from the very much that kind of like frat boy mentality that, you know, the the kind of classic game studio culture that you think of from you know, this era of gaming in a way that can help propel them into the future where that stuff just is not going to fly. Um, and so a big part of the story is like, yeah, they made those changes and morale is really high, but also they did all this during a pandemic. And so it's slow going. Right. And with the changes in production, you know, bringing in some new talent, old producers yeah. leaving, new producers coming in that it's like, OK, seems like developers are a little bit frustrated internally, even though morale is much higher and people are saying it's better and it's a much safer place to work. Uh, that overall, it's it's shocking how slow the development's going for GTA 6. Because Take-Two is expecting it at the latest by March 2024, 20, but then in this article, yep. they're saying the developers internally are like, eh, don't count on it, everybody. This thing might be right. into the generation, you know? Yeah, and I, I guess I, that that doesn't seem like a huge shock to me, yeah. even even on a Rockstar, that it, with a Rockstar that was firing on all cylinders, I think it would probably take them a little bit more time to to get the thing they're going to get. But yeah, I mean, look at everything that's happened since the last time they, they did this, you know, you have a Lens- Leslie Benzies is long gone. Yeah. Like Dan Hauser, like one of the literal Hausers is gone now. Uh, and also you've got the world as it stands today. How do you make a satirical look at the United States with everything that's happened? Like they're facing so many different, interesting and hard problems uh, that I, I yeah, it, it just seems crazy to like, uh, and, but I've, I've felt that way all along. That's the thing I always say is every time before they announce what the next Grand Theft Auto is, there's a part of me that's just like, man, I don't know what the hell they're going to do this time. And then they would come up with like San Andreas or something. You'd be like, oh, okay, yeah, you guys are clearly smarter about this than I ever ever was. Um, (laughs) And so, yeah, but the the other piece of this is they're talking about a a playable female protagonist for the first time. 
um, and that she will be one of a pair of leading characters uh, in a story that is, you know, like like basically like a pair of bank robbers in a Bonnie and Clyde esque way. It was just specify uh, real quick that there's been playable female protagonists, but not in like real Grand right. Theft Auto. Like, yeah, was it like GTA One? Oh yeah, okay, yep. Wait, yeah, really? GTA One had yep, yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's that is a completely separate game. Right, so. right. Yeah. I remember even yes. I mean 2013 when GTA Five released, and I was like, okay, there's three protagonists. Yeah, they're all men. I feel like even in 2013, I was like, what, really? Okay, you think you could open some new avenues there? But sure. So it's amazing now that they're finally leading it around to it in a big way. And I think I think that's an interesting premise having just kind of the duo here for Bonnie and Clyde. Maybe there are a couple. Who knows what this is going to be like? But yeah, so that was one of the big tidbits from the story. And then also the fact that uh, there were a lot of rumors, but it seems to be confirming this taking place in Vice City again in Miami. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's been, that's been going around for, for a while. It was just a matter of like, you know, Hey, do you, do you believe that or not? Cause right. again, it seems like a game that, you know, that could have turned in a, in a lot of different ways over these last handful of years. You know, you also set it against the backdrop of like red dead, not really, or at least the online portion of red dead, not doing what they probably thought it was going to do. And also they have to make a follow-up that is going, you know, wh- what do they do? GTA online is such a cash cow for them that the minute they try to ship a new GTA, what happens? Do they have to also ship with an online mode that tops that in so many different ways that, you know, this, this game will have to serve so many different masters. It seems almost impossible to make. Yeah. So one of the strategies that they have is the same. The article Jason Trier there says uh, that the plan, quote, is to continually update the game over time, adding new yeah. missions and cities on a regular basis. Adding new cities seems ambitious as hell. Like, does that just mean more places in the outskirts of Miami? Or do you think it's going to be expanding? Like, let's jump to a little pocket of Liberty City. Like, I guess we did in San Andreas. Like, I'm really curious sure, right. what that means. I, I, I think they, that's when you when you look at what GTA Online probably needed. It, it's more landmass. It's it's more, yeah. you know, if, if you, at some point you're and it's a, it gets granted. It's a very big city in GTA 5. But, you know, you, you at some point you've crammed so many different things into so many different portions of that city that you're like, oh, here's our new expansion. You're driving on the same streets. You already know how to get around here by now. But now you're doing it for Dr. Dre, I guess, <laughs> right, you right. know, and and that stuff's all fine and good. But yeah, like more landmass, like stuff that's going to keep people like, OK, we've we've really built this city for street racing as opposed to just cramming street racing into this. And, you know, I think the ability to have like even more control over just the geometry of the world and and then go and sell that stuff or or you make it enticing or sell sell things on top of it depending on how they decide to monetize like that sounds like a really compelling way to make that thing last another decade yeah for sure gta6 everybody hold your breath please um hey kelsey do you know how this whole thing operates uh i'm sorry i was thinking yeah um, <laughs> um i'm pretty sure it's uh is it patreon there we go patreon.com slash right. minmax with two n's if you enjoy the show you can help support the show and unlock some benefits in the meantime and if you enjoy the video version of this show you can always subscribe to the minmax show podcast on your favorite podcast app it's not a patreon exclusive it's free for everybody so we'd appreciate it if you subscribe to the audio version of that and a special thank you to some of minmax's biggest supporters i'm talking about folks like nordvpn they want everybody to know that first of all vpn stands for a virtual private network. They say that, hey, if a game isn't available in your country, a show isn't available in your country on some streaming service, why, that's no problem at all. You can get NordVPN. 
Uh, it'll change your virtual location and unblock your favorite games and geo-restricted servers. You can find a discount available in other regions as well. There are 5,500 servers in 58 countries. You can grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com minmax, with two ends, of course, to get a huge discount off your NordVPN plan, plus free threat protection, plus one additional month for free. It's completely risk-free with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. That is NordVPN, everybody. There's a link below for all this stuff. The promo code is minmax. You can access this thing from anywhere. So check out NordVPN if you want even more freedom on the internet. Also, thanks to our friends at i8bit. They want you to know about their new game, Escape Academy, which is available everywhere. Not quite the Switch, but it's on the Xbox Game Pass. It's on PS4, PS5, PC, through Steam, and the Epic Games Store. So the premise is, you've just arrived at Escape Academy, a school where promising students train to become the ultimate escapist. You can play over a dozen masterfully handcrafted rooms designed by experienced experts in the field of real-life escape rooms. You can explore the campus of Escape Academy and get to know the faculty and a colorful cast of characters each an expert in the art of escape. And you can go to IM8Bit's wonderful online store and use the promo code CORNMONTH, CORNMONTH, to get 10% off of everything under $100. So please check them out because they support us in a big way. And special thanks to our friends at IM8Bit because everybody who submitted a question over there on Patreon, we're going to choose our absolute number one favorite question. And that person is going to win a Weezer vinyl. The Weezer Cross Wave Break 7-inch Vinyl. So look alive, Jeff, because we need you to remember the best question submitted, and then they will go out to the mailbox and receive a Weezer Vinyl. Okay. Okay, ready? Weezer Vinyl. All Here right. we go. Sent the Prophet uh, asks, uh, said, Hey, Min Max and the Jeff and Dream episode right here. Thank you, Sent. That's right. Uh, in the theme of preserving game history, are any of you making steps to preserve certain game consoles slash games so you can play them in late retirement? Like having a working PS2 or GameCube stashed away with your favorite games in hopes of relaunching it one day? Great question, Sent. Uh, so here's a couple of tips for people who uh, might be thinking about this now, because, yeah, that is... The more complicated the tech gets, the harder this is to do. Um, your NES is probably still fine. I mean, pin connectors, maybe not so much, but, like, the less moving parts, the better. Uh, if you got anything with an internal battery before you store it, take it out. Uh, like a 3DS, a PSP, anything like that. Um, Switch, too. The Switch is going to be a nightmare. The Switch is a... Uh, um, and the Vita's like this, too. Like, if you just don't charge it for a sort of long time, uh, it's real dead. Like, it is the most dead. And you might have to open it up and replace the whole... Really? The whole battery and everything. Yeah, I don't. I don't... I don't understand electronics super well, so I don't know what it is about those systems, but they are they are not great. Um, cool dry places and, uh, you know, separate things. Make sure there's no way for mice and bugs and stuff to get in. All that will help in the future. And oh. uh, get yourself an iFixit kit um, or other screwdriver set, but that's that's the best one. And, and learn how to do some simple repairs is a good, uh, good place to start. I think it's ambitious for people to think that they will have this day someday when they're retired where they'll finally be like, now is the day I unbox that GameCube and truly this is the day for nostalgia. Like, I don't think that day will ever come. Spice Orange. Look at this thing. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm not I am not precious about original hardware or any of that sort of stuff. I think that the way a lot of these consoles can now be modified to replace the 
all, all to replace a lot of those moving parts and just start running games off of SD cards. Um, yeah. I have been a big proponent of emulation and running that stuff on the PC since since it was only Game Boy and it was in the mid 90s. And the only thing you could do is play original Game Boy games on a PC. But now you have a lot of these FPGA based solutions like the Mr. that are making huge leaps and bounds all the time when it comes to playing great versions of classic arcade games and a lot of consoles all the way up to PlayStation one. And, you know, they have Saturn and Jaguar in the works and stuff like that. Um, that is way more interesting to me. I want to get to a point where I never have to go back out to the garage to getting any of those games. And so the, I got way the, too many cables. I'm with you. Exactly. Like, it's just, you know, at some point I'm like, well, I, I went and got a retro tink and now suddenly I'm buying SCART cables and I'm like, what have I become? This is this, I can't do this. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, I think once I kind of thin out a lot of the memorabilia and press releases and all that other stuff, I, I am going to take a long look at the actual library of games because as a longtime reviews editor, those games just showed up in the mail. And so it wasn't like I was picking through them and going like, I'm going to start a very high quality collection. It was just like, nope, I've got every Madden for every console for this generation and the generation before it and then two generations after it. And I, they are all sealed and who cares? Uh, someone does. It's not me. <laughs> and yeah. if I want to play those games, there are a, a ton of other ways to do that that don't involve opening those copies of, of Madden and actually doing it. So I, I want to go through that stuff. And, you know, like at one point, uh, we got it in our heads like like someone on Yahoo auctions. Japan was selling lots of Famicom cartridges and Super Famicom cartridges where it was like, you know, 80 yen a cart. And so you just go buy them and then suddenly you're like, oh, I have these. are This is nine of these games are horse racing games. Like I can't re- and I can't read any of this. What? Why did we do this? What did we do? <laughs> uh, and so now that stuff's just in my garage. And it's like someone will appreciate those games, but it's it's not going to be me anytime soon. So that's that's kind of the next phase for me is to like really pare it down to like, here's the stuff I actually like and and care about and and all of that sort of stuff. Like I still have my because I reviewed the game. I didn't need to open my copy of Ocarina of Time when I got my hands on it. Nice. And so I still have a sealed gold copy of Ocarina. And, you know, at some point I'll get that preserved in a way that I can put it somewhere nice and look at it and go, yeah, that game is damn near perfect. Uh, and uh, and hang on to games like that. But yeah, when it comes to just like, you know, I have 700 PlayStation 2 games and most of them are terrible. You know, it's just I, I don't I just don't need to have that stuff again. If, if you're willing to cross those lines, those games are just out there. You want to get yeah. your hands on those games. You can, and and you can play them a lot, a lot of different ways. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not precious about original hardware and original discs and all that sort of stuff in a lot of those situations. We're in, we're in a similar boat there. I think I have a lot of that, um, you know, old school. Uh, like I, I also have an uh, sealed Ocarina of Time because the version that I played was the one that Nintendo sent me. And I still yeah. have that too. And the little treasure chest that came in. Ooh, and people are awesome. always, you know, I, I always joke about this, but I'm, but I'm actually serious. Like I, I call myself a gatherer and not a collector. And the reason I just wanted a term <laughs> that is not collector because I'm not a collector. Like, come on, man. I was, dude, I, I have a ton of stuff, but I, yeah. In my mind, a collector is somebody who is either buying this in in hopes of, you know, turning a profit someday. Maybe that's not fair. Not all collectors are like this, but this is my definition anyway. And also like, you know, very precious about like not opening things and all that. I'm not like that at all. I like enjoy ripping stuff open. I, a friend of mine sold his collection of PlayStation games uh, recently. He used to work at Sony. And so he had like tons of just like uh, shrink wrapped, you know, um, unopened PS1 stuff from the early days. And I, I helped him find somebody who wanted to buy him. 
and in exchange, I was like, just give me a couple because I want these. And he gave me like the sealed copy of like Kingsfield, the the mm. tall one, or yeah. Race of Revolution. This game that meant a lot to me. I am totally ripping that shit open on YouTube someday. Like I'm not. That is not for me to sell. That is for me to just you know feel that feeling of opening the game and smelling the manual and and all of that. So. I'm in a similar boat. I'm not, I, I think um, <clears throat> I do want to play some of that stuff. Like I, I don't need to play it on the original hardware, but there's something to be said for that feeling of like popping a cartridge in a, in a system to me. I just, I just love it. And it's still like, I have my GameCube and my Game Boy player still hooked up because occasionally I'll just want to play a Game Boy Advance game in that way that I played it back in the day, but I'm not married to it. Like, and it's not super precious. I also would I, like, I'll play it on an analog system if I have it or whatever too, you know, like I'm, I'm totally down with modern ways of playing stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Chris Logan has a related question saying, hello, Ben and the special guests. Uh, when is the last time you played Guitar Hero? And do you feel like you could pick it up today without losing a step? Man, I, I had the house to myself over the weekend. And my big moment was I'm going to haul my CRT TV upstairs and then hook up Guitar Hero because I've never played all the way through Guitar Hero 2's campaign, quote unquote. Um, and then I started to lift the TV, but I had to like go around my bench press thing and it's just, it's just i give up <laughs> i threw in the towel immediately but knowing that i could do that is very exciting i held it in my hands as jeff gersman likes to say yeah why, why do you have to play guitar here on a crt i think it's more fun right and oh, okay. worry about yeah, like, just... the input delays and whatnot like i think i think you sure. need to do that i don't know if Latency. they have like a calibration yeah yeah, yeah i guess yeah. i guess it's yeah it's a little more important on a game like that i'm just thinking of like you know you need a crt for things like a light gun game right right you don't you don't from a tech perspective, need it for Guitar Hero, but yeah, for maybe for latency and stuff. Yeah, let, yeah. yeah. Parappa, they're like the original. If you want to go play like original yeah. Parappa, that's one that has really tight windows. That's really hard to play totally. on on a modern TV. Like you can do it, but ugh. yeah. Uh, at Rock Band, I played not too long ago. Got some friends over, and that's still really fun. It's really bizarre to go into like the settings for Rock Band One, and they have different like TV settings, and it's like. What are they, I don't even know what they're talking about. Rear <laughs> projection option? What, what is this crap, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, I actually, I, I want to go back and play Guitar Freaks, the Ooh. Konami <laughs> series. I have my Guitar Freaks guitars for, for PS1 and uh, like the first three or four of those games, the console versions of them. And yeah, I've, I've had Happy Man from Guitar Freaks stuck in my head recently. And so that is a that is a quest I am on. I have a massive CRT out in my garage that... I have no business owning um, that I should probably hook all that stuff up and, and give it a go. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I've always wanted to ask you this. Um, why aren't you more into Amplitude from Harmonix? That, that, those games, Frequency and Amplitude, they seem up your alley and you've never talked about them in a way and I've always been struck by that. Yeah. I know that in your field, everybody's bugging you about games all the time, but that one struck me as odd. Uh, they're they're really good. I, I always thought that they were cool and I, I guess they... They struck me as a little easy in some ways really? or yeah, as or in terms of there's that. And, and also you kind of only get really get to hear the full song after you've built the whole track. And right, so sometimes right. you are you are freestyling that in a way that sounds pleasant. And sometimes you're just going through the motions, which is like, I got to bang this out. And then ex-girlfriend, my no doubt will be played and all <laughs> will be right with the world. And then we will move on. Um, it's a great remix of of ex-girlfriend. That's a great version of that specific no doubt song. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no, th those those games are totally fine. I, I don't have any real nostalgia for them. Also, the other thing is like, I think I like I didn't review either of those games. OK. And so it was there. There was definitely an aspect of just like as a reviews editor, like I was playing five other games as those games were coming out and, you know, someone else reviewed them. And so like I didn't 
I didn't necessarily have to play through them. And so was, there were some games that just sort of fell through the cracks on that front. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I, 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 I liked those games when they tried to bring it back. I was not into the, the, the one they, that, that last one they, they brought out. I, it was a valiant effort and I appreciate that they actually made it happen. Um, but it just it just didn't didn't work for me at that point. Yeah, the soundtrack they tried to like weave a narrative into the campaign yeah. about somebody going into a coma, and like there are parts that are really great in certain songs, but overall it's like I think we'd rather just have a hodgepodge of songs by and large. But I still I love that game. That's one of my favorite high score chase experiences is that amplitude mm-hmm. for PS4. Like it's really fun if you have a group of friends that are dedicated to trying to get the max out of the stores. Anyways, I got into rock band blitz and Ooh, like rock band unplugged, Rep. which were yep. kind of like, you know, spiritual follow-ups to, to those games. So I, yeah, I don't know what it was about those games in particular, but yeah, I, I got weirdly into rock band blitz. Weird. All things. Ha. Huh. Yeah. Uh, I probably because your you know song collection carried over and whatnot. It's kind of fun that way. That was the, yeah, that yeah. probably helped. Uh, Dustin Davis writes in and says, hello, Kelsey and the pod people. Hello, that's us. Uh, do gamers in Japan import Western games or media much? That's an interesting that's a question. That's question. Uh, yeah, I don't... Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to say not to the level that it goes the other way, for sure. Um, I mean, modern times, though, especially, it's not super difficult to get your hands on most games, so there's not as much of a need to import anymore, right? A lot of times, you know, games, especially now, like on Switch and everything, will have every language built in, no matter which version you get, but like if something it only came out in the West, probably there's some hardcore people here who are into that sort of thing, but you don't hear about it that often. And and I feel like, you know, the other way around is just a way more common situation because there's just, you know, pe- people have been importing Japan. I mean, I got started importing games from Japan, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We used to, hear a lot, used to hear this term called yoge a lot back in the day, which is basically foreign game. And it was not a, it's not really a friendly term. It was kind of derogatory, like, oh, all the sh- Western games, because back in the day, a lot of most of the best games were coming out of Japan. Right. But like nowadays, it's not like that anymore. There's lots of love and respect for Western games, especially indie games. And so, um, you know, also, there's just not as much of a need because most games are getting released here anyway. So, yeah. Uh, also, I, has- I can only say oh, that I, I see I occasionally see like U.S. versions of games on Yahoo auctions. And I always find it really interesting when that happens. I'm like, oh, I wonder how that happened but of course you see it the other way around you see it just constantly i mean everyone's got you know ebay is full of japanese video games being shipped out of the states rather than out of japan so yeah totally yeah there was a i remember in akihabara there was a shop there that was specializing in selling western games and yeah. it was always really fun to go in there and look at the things that were like way over like you, you always think like man i need to start buying used jaguar games and bringing them over here because these lunatics are trying to sell them for two hundred dollars uh and you'd see, yeah, all, all kinds of just like, here's this, you know, what Maximum Carnage or, you know, like, here's this Genesis game that didn't come out in Japan and and they're trying to charge 20,000. No, totally. But at the same time, you would also see like, like perfectly preserved, like Atari 2600 and Intellivision games on the shelves there yeah. because like yeah. probably somebody in Japan bought it and the people just generally take care of their stuff here for whatever reason. I don't know what it is. And so you would, you'd have to spend a lot of money, but sometimes you could find some real gems in those old Akihabara runs, man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Dustin also asks, are gaming podcasts popular in Japan? No, not as, oh, okay, I shouldn't say no. That's, that's too, that's general. But like, I have a hard time finding good Japanese podcasts to listen to. I, I, I often want to listen just to practice my, my, you know, Japanese, like game lingo. What are, what are people saying in, you know, in casual conversation and not the stuff you, you know, read about. And, and I've only found a couple. Um, it's nowhere near 
podcasts I feel like about game stuff are nowhere near at the level that they are in the West for whatever reason. What do you have any theories? Why do you think that is? I don't even know, man. I, I, you know, I mean, it's a smaller, you know, country and market or whatever for one thing, but also like, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to generalize. It's a tough thing when you start talking about like an entire culture, but I think, in, you know, in very basic terms, it's not a secret that maybe people here are a little less, you know, um, people are quiet, more quiet and reserved or, or, you know, not as interesting as, as blabbing their opinions out to other people as, as, you know, maybe we are in the West. And so that is kind of on a very general level, maybe one reason, but yeah, it's too bad because I would love to hear what people on the ground here are just, you know, thinking about latest releases and stuff. And, and there's a couple. There's a one called um, Game Nantoka that I listen to, which is just a few dudes who've been doing it regularly every week for a while now. And it's, it's cool to hear them talk about games. It's cool to hear them talk about Western games and what they think about stuff because it's usually very different from how we approach these yeah. things. But, um, but there's not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's not a case where like, you know, like, like Famitsu doesn't have a a podcast or I, it's like, I, I just like the media landscape over there feels more mysterious now than it did as, as, as more and more games started just getting simultaneous releases. Like it yeah. just feels like I, I just remember the days of like when we had like Ike or Yutaka or, you know, like people just like, here's our Japanese editor. That's going to like go buy the magazine and send us the scans and we're going to put them up and uh, all that sort of stuff. Like it's, it's just so far from that now that I, I just, I rarely encounter Japanese media about games where it seems like that was something that was like on a weekly basis, you were hunting something down. Yeah. It's so different now. Right. I mean, what, what happened for a little while, remember like Kojima had his own like show. I think it was Hidechan Radio or whatever. And he had, and there were like, there were a few different, Famitsu had some stuff and and they might still have it now too, but I don't, I don't follow Japanese media for like, I guess you're not going to hear like critical opinions so often from the Japanese media. And and that's not a criticism of the media here. It's just a different landscape. Like in Japan, you know, with the media, you know, they'll review your game, but they'll send it to you first for your approval. You know what I mean? And that's, and you know, hearing that when I first heard that coming over from the West, I was like, what is this heresy? That's insane. Why would anybody know? Never. But, but it's not, it's just a different, it's just a different culture of, of media, I feel like. And so because of that, you know, I, I don't know that there are, like, even if there were radio shows, they don't sound super interesting to me because I feel like you're just going to kind of hear the, the, them toe the line on a lot of stuff, you know, or, mm. or hear what maybe the publishers want you to hear. And again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. And there's probably a big mainstream audience that wants to hear that. But me personally, I just really want to know what people like us, you know, are yeah. thinking about stuff. And kind of one of the reasons why we do our own podcast is just to sort of let off steam about stuff. Cause we can't really do that in a professional environment, you know? Yeah. Well, just um, for, you know, the sake of history, it'd be nice to hear what Jap like Japanese society thinks of some of these games that are releasing, you know, just in a more casual setting and to have that recorded in some way. Which, yeah. You do see, you know, Twitter has, um, what do they call that now where you can, uh, so there was clubhouse for a little while. Is that what it was right. called? Right. Clubhouse. Yeah, yeah. 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 And that was pretty big in Japan for like, I don't know, four or five months. And you would actually see a lot of um, game creators going on and actually talking pretty frankly about stuff. And it was super fascinating, but it just, it sort of went out of style. And so it, that just went away. Huh. And now your Twitter has something similar. I forget what they call it. Spaces. spaces. Yeah. Spaces. yeah. And, and every now and then at night, I'll like hop on and I'll see somebody who I'm really like Yoko Taro or something will be like on spaces talking about like what he ate that day or whatever, like not just totally random stuff. And that's fascinating to me because it gives you kind of an inside look at what these, you know, kind of um, these creators are like, 
you know, as regular people and not under that media filter or whatever. But it's just so rare. Like you don't like I'll see that once every couple of weeks. It's not like you've got like regular shows and stuff like that. So, yeah. Kelsey, uh, not to put you on the spot here, but gaming podcast. Do we have like archives of the first gaming podcasts? I mean, Gersman. The first gaming podcast? <laughs> you understood the landscape. What, what is the way. first gaming podcast? Yeah, I mean, that'd be an interesting question, right? Could you dig it out? Like, what is technically the first gaming-focused podcast released through iTunes? Would that be the easiest distinction? Well, it, the lines blur when it's like radio show versus podcast versus, uh, versus yeah. like, you know, embed on a website or something. I mean... Uh, I feel like podcast as a concept is still a, like it, it's a newer word, not new, but you know, it, it's not a word that goes back like crazy far. But I think you'd have to just go um, from like the iTunes submission, which I mean, Gersman, you probably have some insight into this too. I, for the I feel like days. We, I feel like we launched the hotspot before there was an iTunes. Okay. Or, or before iTunes had podcast integration. Cause when podcast first launched, it was just a spec for RSS feeds that could contain MP, links to MP3 files. And so when Adam Curry of MTV fame invented the podcast, uh, like it was, it was just that like Apple had nothing to do with it. Um, and I remember wanting to start one almost immediately as soon as I found out about it, but it took a long time to convince management to let us do it. And I want to say in that time frame, IGN got one going before we did. Oh, interesting. Okay. But that, that, so I, I maybe by a couple of months, they may have been the first like regular one. You could have had situations where someone toying around with the format just decided to talk about games and and maybe there's something that none of us have ever heard of yeah, out there. But that. yeah. But when we started the hotspot, it was an audio component of a text feature that was like, here's the weekly hot topics in video games. And so it was us sticking to the seven things that were on that page and just talking about that by and large. And it wasn't an RSS feed. It was just like you had to click on it and it technically was an MP3 but it didn't necessarily exist as a like RSS feed podcast thing for a little while. Huh? After you know, that, do you know if those are saved like, anywhere? A lot of them made it to the internet archive. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if they have the full, full run of them, but, uh, but a lot of stuff, a lot of the run of that show made it there. Right on. Uh, LB. Ben, are you backing up this, uh, this podcast onto the internet archive? No. Should I be doing that? And how do I do that? Probably, uh, I, I won't explain it on the show Thank to you. you. That'll, but, <laughs> <laughs> right, but we'll yeah, we'll, we'll put it on the internet archive, and then, uh, then you know, it's backed up somewhere else other than than YouTube or uh, on your hard drive. I, I should do that because I'm, I'm going to run out of hard drive space here pretty soon. Yep. So. <laughs> yeah, way to go. Uh, LB writes in, uh, last week we had a big debate about uh, helicopters versus motorcycles and what was cooler. Um, so LB is going off of that and asking, by the way, Jeff, did you have a take on that? I saw your eyes light up. It's, it's, hel- it's, hel- it's helicopters. Correct, correct. Absolutely correct. Uh, but LB writes in and says, is Road Rash 2 for the Sega Genesis the best motorcycle game of all time? I like Moto Racer on the PC, uh, but I don't know if that's really like, good I'll, if I went back like to Motocross it. Madness was, well, like speaking of PC games, actually, was, okay. was pretty good in its day. Um, and then Road the, Rash, I, I was never a big Road Rash guy. I don't know. Like, they just always seemed kind of corny to me. I played yeah. some Road Rash 64 pretty recently and was surprised by like, oh, this actually isn't bad. Oh, really? Uh, but 
Yeah. I played a lot of Road Rash 3DO, I think, just because at the time there wasn't, A, yeah. there wasn't much to play on 3DO, and B, it was like a kind of an early example of a game with licensed music. And I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, this is new and different. But that, that's probably like the one that I played the most, and I didn't even play it that much. Yeah. I would have said, I like, think hey, the answer is, no, bad answer. Yeah. I think the answer is a Biker Mice from Mars. Yep, mm. correct. Yep, checks out. Uh, Hoots writes in and says, with digital games as popular as they are, what does a dedicated video game store need to do to be successful? All right. He wrote this in, actually, last week, Kelsey. I'm like, okay, I got to say this for Kelsey next week. Oh, okay. Uh, and also, what would you like to see at a brick-and-mortar store? So, yeah, Kelsey, as somebody who runs a couple of these things, what do you think it takes for a video game store to be successful these days? Well, it's... um. <laughs> The awareness that uh, this is a changing market and that you can't hang your hat on uh, new releases and modern consoles forever and, you know, finding what you want to have as additional, you know, who your market base is and what you want as additional revenue streams is really all I've been doing. I mean, um, there's always going to be video game collectors. Uh, They are by and large not my like main um, they don't make up the majority of the purchases in the store, I guess. but they'll always be there. So there's always like some amount of market, even when consoles inevitably someday go entirely digital. Um, and, you know, we, we sell other things, honestly. It's like you just got to sell other things like Pokemon cards and plushies. And we import stuff and we, we just try to cater to as many people as we possibly can. Um, kind of knowing that ps5 games and ps4 games and stuff like we're, we're getting towards the end of people wanting to pick up physical copies of games so uh it's kind of a sad reality but it, it is reality and it's probably not going to go away by me wishing that it's not the case so. yeah. but the good news is you know a lot of people in the world are like especially if you're just a little bit more casual of of a game player um a lot of people are like one console behind and they wait till the games are $10 instead of 60 or 70. And I think that's, I think that's an awesome way to live your life. I, uh, I strongly encourage like get into the PS4 now or the PS3 <laughs> now as opposed to get trying to get a PS5 and, and playing everything modern. Yeah. Uh, so that's the secret for GameStop is just more Funko Pops. Is that what you're saying? No. Yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. You know what? I, I don't want to, there's a lot of problems with GameStop. <laughs> Yeah, Funko lands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. More Funko lands. How about some Funko mm. land NFTs? You know, well, that's really interesting. Interesting. Uh, hey, Jeff Grossman, um, what would you do if you're if you were the editor in chief of Game Informer these days? If you were in those shoes, what would be the strategy? Um, you know, it, how much strategy are you able to execute being owned by GameStop? Like the the strategy. You know, I've I've seen kind of some of the people that got out of their one way or the other recently talking about like the lack of backfill on positions Yeah, as someone who faced that a lot over the last couple of years. Um, I would leave. I, I, I just, I don't, I like that's, that's in, that is so frustrating to you because you get in a situation where you're like, okay, I know what I need to do to execute. Like what's the best version of game Informer magazine today. And how many people do you need to do that? It's probably more than they have right now. Yeah. Sure. And so it's a matter of like, do you want to tread water and just like keep waiting for the next hit? Or are you just like, hey, look, you know, like I, I, it's not, I don't own this magazine. They own this magazine. They will always own this magazine. I should either go start my own magazine or go get into consulting or go get into, you know, some, some other adjacent line of work or something like that. I think, I think that would be the, 
this is this is something that's a lot easier for me to say totally that totally. it would have been harder to say about two months ago in terms of just like my thoughts on this process because <laughs> going through uh the stuff i went through i think changed a lot of uh my perspective on this stuff but i, I just look at it as just like you know it's it's awesome that they were able that they have been able to make it this far as like the, the last print magazine standing you know yeah. like that was you know when 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 we merged with Ziff, I think there were a lot of us at GameSpot back in the day that were like, wait a minute, we're focused on putting these people out of business because they're print magazines. And, and because Johnny Wilson from CGW was a real jerk to us um, and soured the relationship as it was getting started. Um, but, you know, yeah, I, I think I, I look at that stuff and just go like, you know, how much, and, and this is also an answer that changes because I've got a family and I, I got stuff I want to do outside of this. Whereas in my twenties and thirties, all I did was this. And so I, I would look at it and go like, realistically, how much impact can I have? Uh, how much impact will they let, will, will corporate let me have on this product? Uh, do I feel that that's an acceptable level of quality that I would feel good showing up and doing this every day? Or is it just constantly putting out fires and constantly trying to like, you know, put your fingers in the dam and, and all this other stuff. Like at some yeah. point, um, at some point it's just like, you know, is, is this, is this worth it or should I walk away and, and either start something else, go do something else, like, like do, do something like that. I, I that's, that's probably where I'm at with it. I, I would, uh, I would, I would get my band and get out on tour and make some things happen. <laughs> no, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, it's, I think it's so tough and you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of these emotions, Jeff, but just walking away from that history, I think it'd be yeah. so tough. If any of those old timers at Game Informer were like, well, I'm out. It's like at a certain point history is crumbling behind you as you slam the door closed. Like that's a tough thing to say goodbye to. It's just, I mean, there's, you steal as much as you can on the way out. I mean, well, you know, Frank already went out and scanned a lot of it. So like, yeah, I think, you know, like a lot of that stuff, that would be the thing that would weigh on me is like, is there a way that we can get this stuff and, and get it out to the people. And, and that was the stuff that kind of weighed on me was just like, well, what about this wiki that users have been contributing to for all this time? And what about, the tapes what about all the the old b-roll tapes we've been saving that i wanted to give to frank as after we scanned them or, or you know like all that stuff um there's yeah it, it, there's always something like that but um it's not worth your own sanity at some point that's yeah. the thing i think i realized is you know you can you can really mess yourself up Hey, I'm a Biggie Boy writes in, and they say, Hey, gamers, it's us, a Biggie Boy. Uh, they say, Jeff, your Steam Deck stream is the most excited I've seen you about new games and or hardware in a long time. Ben and Kyle seem to enjoy theirs as well, and I love mine as well. So my question is, how far do you think this thing will go? Is it enough to make Valve a more significant name in the hardware market to the eventual level of the big three? Oh, that's ambitious, Biggie Boy. I mean, aren't they? I mean... If you look at this, the the volume that is going through Steam every day, like forget the hardware aspect of it, yeah. aren't they already one of the, you know, aren't they already yeah. on the level of a big three? Yeah, yeah. What, what does it mean? It's a triple A conundrum of what does it really mean to be a member of the big, the big family? Right. And they don't, they not, I mean, they don't ship as many games uh, as, as the others do, I suppose. Uh, though I guess Microsoft is making a, a pretty good run at not shipping games this year. Um, yeah, I... I th- I love the Steam Deck. I think it's very clunky. It has, I, I love tinkering with it. I'm trying to get Fantasy Star Online 2 running on it right now. Perfect. Um, I got Mortal Kombat 11 running on it, even though it's listed as unsupported. And, and so really? like, like doing that sort of stuff, like really digging into it and messing around with it has been my my favorite thing about it. Um, 
and and in in that respect it's been really great just as a tinkery kind of it's like my first tinkering platform my first linux machine uh sort of way in terms of like well if i break it i can always re-image it and it'll, it'll be fine in the long run because uh, I'm really good at breaking a Linux install over the years. That's <laughs> I've done it over and over again. Um, yeah, it's the dream and, of the Steam boxes come to life. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, th- there's been a lot of people wondering like, oh, when do they get this into Best Buy or whatever? But like, as it stands right now, like, no, like it, it, it's, it's not there yet. I think if they have another revision of the hardware, if they keep pushing on Linux and they get more and more games running, um, so that when you have your Steam library, because there's a lot of games right now that you might just own as because the, they're popular. Like Destiny 2 is a great example. I don't think you can sell this to a mainstream consumer and then tell them like, oh, by the way, some games don't work. And some of those games are really big games. Yeah. I think you have to solve like pretty much all of those problems before you can really push it out as a mainstream advi- uh, device and try to say like, this is going to compete with consoles. Like it's, it's just not there. Um, but, but I mean, you can't even it. make enough right now to get in the hands Correct. of people who want them. Like, you know, exactly. I mean, I, I got I got mine and I had ordered, I feel like in the first like five minutes and I only just got my own one like two weeks ago or something. Oh, and wow. I, I hear if you order now, it's just a really long time. And so and then you've got other countries around the world, too. Right. You guys are lucky in that the U.S. is actually able to get these things. They promised it for Japan, but there's no way to get one here. And we were talking about this recently. We, we think at this point we'll be lucky if we get like the second iteration, you know, like Steam Deck version two or whatever by the time they're actually able to produce that many so yeah it's gonna be a while before it becomes a mainstream you know device on the level of of a switch or a or a a playstation but the demand feels like it's so huge right now and everybody who has it says this rules you just get more and more into it and so i mean four years from now what is any predictions for what it looks like what valve is looking like in their approach to hardware Oh, who knows with Valve, right? I mean, I guess, yeah. you know, maybe they get bored of it and they move on to the next thing. Uh, but yeah, I, I think, you know, it, it, for me, it really becomes about like the ease of use on the software. And I, I think that's that's the thing. I, I look at the issues I have with the Steam Deck in terms of it becoming something I could recommend to people that only play console games or, or, yeah. or what have you. Like those are all software problems by and large. So if they keep pushing on that end of it, like this iteration of the Steam Deck could could largely get there. But by the time they get it there, ideally, you'll have a situation where like, oh, we can we can upgrade the hardware in this and, and make it more affordable or both or, you know, offer a wider variety of configurations to, to meet different needs and and all of that sort of stuff in a, in a way that that helps it get out to more players and helps it be something that because right now it'd be really hard for me to recommend to someone who doesn't already play games on a PC, you know, because there's just enough clunky stuff around the edges that you're going to run into and you know like we i started a steam deck channel on the discord for my patreon and that's been super active of people like no here's the command line to do this and here's how you enable ssh on it and then you can just copy files over and do this and do that and you know there's so much different kind of like script kitty kind of stuff with the steam deck and that's what i love about it i love how open it is and just how weird it is i'm probably going to try to install the ubisoft connect uh, client on it so that i can play Trackmania. of course yeah yeah, because why wouldn't you? Uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, so yeah, I, I love that open-ended nature that it has, but I think at the same time, like you can get into some pretty deep water pretty fast if you don't know what you're doing. And, and I think right. that until they kind of button up the software side of things a little bit better, I, I'm, I'm not really thinking of it in terms of it being a mainstream device. I think a lot of the excitement you see is from people that are 
they're the classical early adopters. They're the people that are willing to jump through all those hoops and have all that fun doing all that weird stuff and enjoy it along the way. But at some point you restart reaching consumers who are just like, yeah, I just want to push the button and play the game. Right, right. And this isn't quite there yet. Yeah. Uh, Mick Manga writes in says, Hey, man, Max, uh, I was hoping you could all help with a video game history mystery. Uh, we're here for you, Mick. I was listening to War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells of the day and suddenly remembered that there was a Patrick Stewart War of the Worlds game. However, when I look for it, I can't find anything on it. The only thing I could find was that it was only available for a short time on the Xbox 360. Did any of you play it? Was it good? Why did it disappear? Uh, yeah, this was uh, the um, digital or not digital. Um, Other, Other Ocean. Ocean. This, yes. Right? Yep. Yeah. yep. I think yeah. they did. Yeah. Yeah. Mike, um, Micah worked on this. Which um, is the, uh, the studio the Video Game History Foundation rents space from. So... Um, I can answer the question as to why it went away, though. It's yeah. always licensing. It but is literally always licensing. Licensing always a book from 1848 or whatever the hell it is. Like, <laughs> I mean, whoever owned it might have been the voices in it. It might have been the music yeah. in it. There was probably some expiration date on some contract somewhere. All right, there and it is. Yeah, uh, I remember <laughs> it being interesting, but but not a not a particularly great game. Yeah, you're not missing out. And I looked it up. Apparently, there's a War of the Worlds open world survival game coming on Steam. That's you know just generic, based on the old book and stuff. So if you really need some more War of the Worlds content, you can play that. And then I don't know, have Patrick Stewart's narration from the Castlevania yeah. game over the top of that. Uh, Charles Davis writes in and says, "Question for Kelsey, but anybody really? Uh, my son was just given an original Game Boy Pocket. Can you recommend any standout or unique games from that generation for the Game Boy Pocket?" Ooh, um, I mean, there's there's some classics. Uh, you know, you gotta you gotta have things like Super Mario Land Two is like yeah, a top top two Mario game for me. That's, really, that one's yeah, holy lord, yeah, that high, yeah. Um, I have some. There's some good ones that like I'm trying to think outside yeah, the box. Mania on, please. What's that? Jim? Which one? Oh, Mole Mania. Yeah. Mm. Uh, really I love uh, Kirby's Pinball Land. I think it's a heck okay. of a game. Mario's Picross. Ooh, you know, looking for some, good. some hot Picross action. Uh, Donkey Kong, the original Game Boy. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah, the the nine, 1994. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Donkey Kong on there. That one's that one's really good. Uh, Balloon Kid, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um. Link's Awakening, you know, there's there's enough there yeah. before the, the Game Boy Color generation. Uh, I mean, your kid will be tortured and bored by all of it, but you're welcome to buy them. It'll be fun. Yeah, I, I love Motocross Maniacs. I don't know, yeah, how, how that holds up to someone who hasn't played it ever before, but I like it. There we go. <laughs> uh, all right, what do y'all like for a question of the week? Who's getting I like the one about Obama? running a game store. I think that's a... That, that's. <laughs> That's my pick. Yeah? Everybody else get on board? All right. There we go. Congratulations, Hoots. You just won a Weezer vinyl from our friends at IM8Bit. Get ready for that, everybody. Uh, Now it's time for something that we call, and you guys won't be able to hear this music, so forgive me, something that we call Get a Load of This. All right. Uh, Kelsey, do you got something? I do. Uh, this was an article on Fanbyte uh, by Imran Khan, uh, the curious case of Near Automata's newly discovered church, um, which was a post on, I'm going to try to summarize this the best I can, but uh, someone on Reddit found a church that no one else can find or even seems to, like when he's showing video footage of it, there are just simply things in his game that are not there in other people's games. That's and people amazing. have been trying to replicate 
all of the circumstances using, you know, a uh, unpatched version of the game, using different PS4s, using a Canadian version of the game, uh, just all kinds of like scenarios. People have been trying to, to data mine looking for it. Um, and then like, you know, some people who might, who think it's a hoax and stuff, the modders have come out and been like, I don't think this could really be done. Like he'd have to be a really brilliant modder. That's not using anything that we've been using. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, John maybe worked on your Automata and maybe he's smiling a little bit. No, I'm smiling because this is fascinating to me too. I actually considered bringing this as well, but I thought for sure someone else would. So I'm glad I didn't. But, <laughs> Yeah, it's actually really interesting. And then I, I, yeah, I don't know anything about it myself. Um, or if I did, I would pretend I didn't anyway. So, but it is, uh, it does look like something interesting. I saw the producer of the game actually, you know, responded on Twitter in some fashion as well. I don't know if he was just teasing or whatever, but, you know, maybe something's there. I don't know. It's coming to Switch soon, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Yep. I wonder if this has anything to do with the content update related to that that's or something. Another, that's another theory. Uh, that's interesting. Um, this, is, this is not my actual theory, but it's a dream I've always had of video games in general that someone would make a game where there's a couple things in it that can only happen to like 0.1% of all players. Right. So that when it get, gets brought up and people are like, what's this? It just ca- causes total mass confusion online and and creates a scenario like this and i just i feel like if anyone was going to do that wouldn't it be yoko taro it feels so, right yeah, that's really I, they already had something like that too right wasn't there something last year or whatever where like yeah. the last, quote unquote last secret came out like you know years after release and um uh you know that sort of thing is really hard to do nowadays right because people are data mining you know stuff the second it releases and finding everything and uncovering all the secrets and so it's pretty rad when something like this pops up, you know, yeah. years later. Klepek retweeted something when this first started coming out from someone who played the game pre-release. And I'm trying to find the tweet now and I'm not finding it, but it was something that implied like, oh, I didn't realize this wasn't in the final game because there's a thing here and then some kind of quick time event music video sort of thing at the end of this church sequence. And oh, I am now I didn't see looking, that. yeah, I'm looking through Clapic's Twitter looking Weird. for it and I'm not finding it. So I don't know if that was a hoax or not. So he's sorry if I'm like spreading weird, bad information, but uh, <laughs> sort of it's for uh, that's yeah. kind of the fun of this, right? It was like yeah. the whole yeah. you know, sort of schoolyard conversation about what people found and how to find it. It's like back in the day before the internet that was, you know, Oh, I found minus world three. It's like, wait, what? And like everybody goes running around looking for it for like weeks only to find out it wasn't real. So totally. You can jump over the flagpole. What? <laughs> uh, mine's a lot dumber and simpler. Um, hey, get a load of this, everybody. Maybe everybody already knows this. I did not realize this until this week and it was an eye opening experience. Does everybody know that like the interstates in the United States, they they're laid out in like a system. So going from south to the north, it's 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. And then from west to east, it's 5, 15, 25, 35, yada, yada, yada. And there's actually a logic to the way that the interstate numbers are laid out from the 50s, whenever that was. I, I, I thought no you were going to say that it was like one way was even and one way was odd. I knew there was some kind of system, but I didn't yeah. know that that was it. All right, that's it. It's a boring one, but there it is, everybody. Uh, Jeff, do you got something to share with the class? Uh, I'm obsessed with this the the wrestling drama happening right now. Oh, the McMahon stuff. Um, yeah, the that that has been the thing that has been occupying all of my time in a really weird, not well, maybe not that weird, uh, but yes, the you know the uh, Vince McMahon accused of a lot of hush money payments, covering up affairs, really really grotesque stuff. 
but it's resulted in this situation where now he's been drummed out of the company that he's been running for 40 years. And there's like, we're on the cusp of potential regime change, which has been the thing that like wrestling fans have said they have wanted for a very long time. Like, wow, wouldn't it be interesting if these wrestling shows were not written to please one weird old man uh, and its potential to change the wrestling landscape in terms of like, well, one company, AEW, was founded almost as an alternative right. for people who hated that way of thinking to go and work and do things. Yeah. Um, and now what does that mean for them if the, the big company suddenly becomes a palatable place to work? So it's like this weird upheaval in the wake of the, this nasty situation. Obviously, I don't want to, you know, take away from how awful that stuff is but like the there's a sudden potential and optimism in wrestling fandom that you rarely see You'd like it, it's it's like anime or comics or video games or anything else where like wrestling fans all they do is complain about wrestling and now suddenly there's like a hey i, I think this the stuff that we think sucks i think there's a lot of people there now who also think it sucks maybe they're gonna fix it <laughs> and it's been really fascinating to watch that dynamic and like those things start to happen because it's all this unthinkable stuff of like, oh, this guy's going to be there until he passes away and all this and that. And we're not going to, he's never going to, you know, and, and now suddenly it's been thrust into high gear and it's this, yeah, it, it's, it's now you have people watching these television shows like a hawk on Oh, they did this. They wouldn't have done that if he was and it's like, that's they're They're finding things that are probably not actually true, but it's just fascinating to watch the wrestling fandom bubble up and get excited about uh, the, the possibilities down the line. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying there, there's a chance now that they may bring back Saturday night's main event. Is that, is that what you're saying? I mean, you know, especially if NBC universal ends up buying them, a lot of people are saying that this opens them up for to potentially be sold a lot, uh, a lot more likely than, than it was before. So yeah, potentially. Wow. Uh, John, you got something? I do. I, I, you know, we were talking about this uh, sort of what it was like uh, a little bit uh, back in the day, and I brought um, a YouTube link. I don't know how to how to explain a YouTube link on the air, but uh, I dropped it in for you. But there was this um, <clears throat> there was this thing called Nuts for Nintendo on 2020. Have you guys seen this uh, back in like the late 80s? It was like 19 maybe 88 or 89, where you know 2020, which is is 2020 still around? I've been out of the U.S. for a while. No, it's like an old news. I don't show. think. Yeah, it's, it's ABC, like a 60 minutes esque, but maybe a little less hard hitting. Yeah, like kind of news yeah. magazine show. Um, and I don't and think back, it's still around. Yeah, I, yeah the, you know, back then, especially again, this kind of re, what reminded me of this was just talking about a little bit about how like back in the day, the way you got your information was very different from now, right? Pre-internet, like you, you, you know, you, you obsessively waited for that magazine to show up or if something like this popped up on TV, it was like, oh my God, you know, it was like this, I forget how long it was. It was like 10 minutes or yeah, something, but minutes. it's like this sort of, um, I don't know, thing about uh, what the Nintendo boom was kicking off in the late eighties and it was getting super popular. And, you know, um, it was just sort of a look into what it was like, like people lining up to try and get games. And, you know, I remember, and I've talked about this on our own show sometimes about how like, you know, when we were waiting for Zelda two, there was a chip shortage back then too, a different chip shortage from now, but it, there was literal like the chips that make these games were, were in, in high demand. And, you know, you'd basically like call up KB or whatever every day and be like, did you get Zelda 2 yet? Did you get Zelda 2 yet or whatever? Like the kind of, uh, the way you lived back then was interesting. And so this was just really fascinating. I was thinking about it and I had watched it yesterday and I was like, oh, okay, I, I want to share this. Um, hopefully it hasn't been shared before, but it's just kind of a fascinating look at what 
game media, quote unquote, was like yeah. in like 1988. That's awesome. Yeah, there's links below for all this stuff. Uh, from the community discord, White Mex shared um, that the full 87 minute animatic of Jendi uh, Tartakovsky's canceled Popeye film leaked online. Creator of Dexter's Laboratory, Samurai Jack, uh, The Clone Wars, the short version of it, and Hotel Transylvania, everybody's favorite films. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know if you ever saw like that test animation that they released for that Popeye movie that uh, Tartakovsky was working on, but it just, it looks incredible. And apparently now the full animatic has fully leaked online. So there's a link below if you want to check that out. Oh, wow. Cool stuff. The whole thing made and then it just, it just didn't come out. Just the animatic. So it's going to be a little bit crude. It's not going to be yeah full animation or anything there, but I'll give you an idea of what they were going for with that. Um, all right. That's it for an episode, everybody. Thanks so much. Special guests. Appreciate y'all being here. Yeah. Anytime. Yeah. Yes. Wait, do you mean right. that Jeff? Cause we'll bug you constantly. Sure. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. What do you want to plug, Jeff? Oh, God. I don't know. Uh, Patreon.com slash Jeff Gerstman. If you can't spell that, uh, someone registered enjoyyourgaming.com and pointed it there as well. Um, you know, it's some at some point when this podcast gets archived 20 years from now, someone's going to like dig this up, go to that URL, and it's going to be porn or something. So, you know, That's just know that if you're listening to this in the year 2053. Um, congratulations. I'm surprised we made it this far. But also... Yeah, uh, I'm I'm I, too, am running a Patreon and, you know, you can get a ad free version of my weekly podcast and I'm on Twitch doing that every Tuesday morning uh, and some additional streams and game coverage and all this other stuff. And then I'm working behind the scenes to start getting more guests on the shows and start doing some more interviewee type stuff. John, I yeah. probably need to talk to you about lining up some interviews with some some folks over out in your neck of the woods nice. one of these days here, too. Um, and and yeah. Just and, and building Jeff, it out there. You know what you could do also? You could have like a, I don't want to tell you how to run your Patreon. You could have mm. like a goal of like, hey, if we hit this amount, I'll finally go back to Japan after all these years. You realize it's yeah, on the table. Yeah, that was, uh, there was, I mean, there there was an idea some number of years ago about like, just quit this job, start a Kickstarter and go live in Japan for two years. Um, and that, that was something I was entertaining for a while now you know i, I got two kids i got all this stuff I, just, I can't yeah it gets complicated that's true i can't traipse off to japan for <laughs> for a long period of time but i've got to get back out there it, it is like I, it is eating away at me by the day i haven't been there since 2008 and i know wow. how much everything has changed and and all that sort of stuff and i i want to i just want to go well everything is expensive now i was gonna say i just want to get out there and buy some neo geo games like i used to but like that's i don't i don't make that kind of money yeah. uh so, but yes, uh, patreon.com slash Jeff Gerstman, the Jeff Gerstman show on all your podcast services and such. Uh, and I'm, I'm out there doing stuff. It's oh, video yeah. games. It's fun to hear you getting excited out there. It's really fun content so far. Thanks. Uh, it's been John, a lot of fun. Yeah. John Ricciardi, uh, eight, four play podcast going strong, right? That's right. That's all I got. Yeah. You can find us at eight dash four dot JP. We basically, uh, talk every two weeks about, just random stuff usually elden ring for like an hour <laughs> podcast by people who live in japan talk about japan um and uh, you know it, it's a thing that's done out of love we do not have a patreon yet um and so i say this in the sense of like it's just if you want to listen to a few people just kind of sitting a few people who know each other for like 20 years and just sit around and kind of yap about games for uh an hour and a half or so every two weeks you can find us there eight four play awesome and i don't want to tell you what to do either um, but just as a fan of Sarah Pozorski and of A4 Play, it's like, since you guys yeah. are remote, like having a reunion and her coming back on the show at some point, I think it'd be really fun. Like hearing, hearing her and Tina together would be a, a fun thing for a listener, I think. 
already got the last episode planned. I don't know when it's going to be. When we do the last episode, I know okay. how it's going to go. So, I love it. You know, maybe, I love maybe it. That'll be the big reunion. <laughs> uh, Kelsey, you mentioned things earlier, but uh, where should folks go if they want to learn more about you or game history? Yeah, uh, Video Game History Foundation is uh, just at Game History, or sorry, GameHistory.org, Twitter at GameHistoryOrg. Um, we have a Patreon as well. Uh, we have a podcast. Uh, check it all out and uh, learn about some video game history. Yeah, there's going to be links below for all this fun stuff. Uh, thanks to everybody who supported MinMax on Patreon. We recently hit our goal, the Trek to Shrek goal. So we're flying Janet Garcia across the country just to play Shrek 2 on the Nintendo GameCube with us and local co-ops. That should be fun. We're also going to make a whole travelogue about her time here in Minnesota. So it should be a fun time. So thank you for letting us hit that goal. Uh, thank you for supporting us and voting for us to create weird content like Leo Vader and myself going one-on-one in real-life basketball this week. It didn't go well, but you can watch us be embarrassed on YouTube if you're interested in that. Really good content. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kelsey. Somebody somebody left a comment. They're like, does Hanson know that the point is you're supposed to shoot the basketball, not just throw it repeatedly? It's like, I, I don't know the difference. It really is that level of, of gameplay there. Um, but yeah, if you like what we're doing here at MinMax, any help supporting it is appreciated. And thank you to everybody who supports us at the $50 tier, the game champion tier. You can choose any game under the sun, officially be declared the champion of it. So Patrick Polk, out of any game, they said, I want to be declared the champion of God Hand once and for all. So there we go, Patrick mm. Polk. Uh, Atsigo12 has the correct choice with Legend of Zelda Wind Waker. Congratulations, Atsigo12. And Starkiller says that they want to be the champion of Star Wars The Force Unleashed. So congratulations, everybody. Uh, thank you so much for watching and listening. Thank you, special guests. You're welcome back whenever you want. It's been a real honor having you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. And thanks so much, everybody. Be good, have fun, let's go! Let's go!